0: This is Link to the Cast, your weekly dose of video games and nerd culture ephemera available everywhere. Good podcasts are sold. I am this week's party host. I am the platforming prodigy. I am Mark Robinson. Dave Ryan is away on assignment. He is somewhere bumbling around Kerry, uh, getting further and further into a a number of places that England butchered the names of over the last 800 years. But in the meantime, to my left, he is Mr. Consistency. He is Mr. Chelsea. He is Jack Lazell. Jack, how are you?
1: Yeah, I think Dave went to Kerry for the search for the origin of butter. Like, he wanted to figure out where it all started, and I think Kerry is pretty much the home of butter in all of its various and myriad forms
0: i have a question for you jack because this is a thing that freaks out maria when it comes to to me and something that i do which is i like to if i have the plate with gravy or some sort of sauce or something i will take a slice of bread soak it in butter and then soak like the gravy sauce or whatever into the butter to clean it up and apparently that's just not a thing that people do is is it just is this just a me thing
1: uh i don't need the
2: butter yeah, I uh, was with you oh, until the butter. The butter the, put the, me but off. But the
0: butter adds like extra flavour. It, it it really it builds character into this kind of post meal snack.
2: No, it builds cholesterol into the snack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, 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 the tar. The bread and the gravy is bad enough without you piling a bunch of butter on there too.
1: Yeah, I, I do. You know what though? I'm. This is where I'll probably. Like, some people might disagree with me. I'm not a huge butter in sandwiches guy like i'd much i'd much rather have dry bread if you say mayo
0: i will slap you
1: well it depends on the sandwich i'd much rather have whatever i've got in the bread accompanied by some sauce whether it be you know ketchup or mayo or mustard or something, and I'll get the lubrication from a condiment
0: rather from, than <laughs> from lubrication. The is not a word to use with a sandwich. Oh, yeah, absolutely it is.
1: Mate. Like you can't, you can't, you can't just have a dry ass sandwich. Like no one wants that. <laughs> yeah. Or like if it's say if it's like a cheat, like you, you've got something, but you want to melt some cheese on top of it as well. Like just something to add a little bit of moisture and lubrication into the sandwich. Um, I'm just trying to make it worse now. Oh, wow. <laughs> but yeah, genuinely, butter. Get out of it. I don't need it. I don't, you, you don't belong in here. Now, I will have butter if I'm just having like a piece of toast, for instance, like that's nice. Or if it's really nice butter, like, you know, like fresh bread and really nice butter. But, but only, I can only do it by itself on something either toasted or just really fresh. Anything else I just I like the flavor of the of the things I'm putting in the sandwich to bring the sandwich to life. I, I don't need that additional fattiness in there to be to be clogging up my sandwich with unnecessary
2: calories and shit.
0: To my right he is the nexus of humanity Garrett Kidney. Garrett what is your favorite sandwich?
2: I just eat butter like I get a stick of butter and I just bite into it. <laughs> is that the funny. national dish of cork? It is, actually. We love it. We get together around the streets of Patrick Street, around the, the, the statue of Father Matthew. And I'm like, Father Matthew, this butter is for you. And then we open the butter. Actually, no, we don't even do that. We bite straight into like the foil around the butter. Because it's that kind of <laughs> butter. It's not a tub of butter. It's like the foil-covered <laughs> butter. The good butter. And then we eat that in front of Father Matthew. And he's like, God bless you. Thank you for winning that poetry competition 15 years ago.
1: do you know what though there is something about that butter that comes in those little (laughs) foil packets like you mentioned it does seem to be i mean like a certain percentage more more moorish than if you Mm. get like the full tub or you know or if you get the butter that comes in a like 500 gram or whatever it is wrapped in the foil as well something about the plastic just ruins the butter vibe so you know when you drink like coke out of a bottle it's just infinitely better than out of a can or out of a plastic bottle if you've got the glass bottle coke
0: don't you think the the problem with the butter that comes in the foil though is that it's it's such a like solid mass of 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 butter that you, you'd have to leave it for like three hours uh, out in, in a kind of warm temperature for it to melt to the point that you can actually spread it. Because if you try to, it, obviously it's not a spreadable, but if you've got nothing else in a pinch, you want to use the butter as, as your base. But you can't spread it. You know, you ever have the issue where you've put butter onto the toast and then it just kind of doesn't go anywhere and you're just kind of like dragging around a lump of butter and then you get to the point that you're like, you know, fuck it, this will do. And you just eat it like that. And you just have a dry bit of bread with a bit of butter in the middle.
1: <laughs> so I here, can imagine
0: i can imagine you
1: get into that conclusion a lot mark it's, it's <laughs> you,
0: happened a number of times in this you, lifetime
1: you have a, you have three seconds of patience and you're like oh, i just want this and you just shove the whole piece of bread
2: into your mouth <laughs> right,
0: man, at the same at the same point you get the same amount of butter and toast anyway so yeah just do it all in one don't
2: yeah spread it here's some some butter and toast pro tips you want to be careful you don't want to hold it too long but hold the butter over the toaster while it's toasting for a few seconds, so, uh, so you, you soften the top of it, so that when you actually again, heat, this is knife, this is
0: not a level of patience I have, Gary. You could
2: also heat the knife; that's also an option. I heat yep. the butter oh, personally. Mm. You could heat the knife. <laughs> exactly. Like say that, like a hot knife
1: through butter. Like there's there's a reason that's there. Great. You go. I saw one of those like infernal tiktok videos and it was like a person who's like you know they put the w- i don't know why people do the weird creepy computer voice over their tiktok videos those. A- because
0: everyone thinks they're fucking anonymous or something
1: yeah hey i got a top tip and it's like in a stupid annoying computer voice um but uh, there was a girl on there who'd put um butter into like a container. So basically, she was like, or, or you know, it's Pritt stick slash lipstick, it, but it was definitely like a Pritt stick style thing, or whatever the American equivalent was. So she was like, it's basically spreading the butter on the bread like it was glue, essentially, um, and like you can like twist, and then more butter comes up. And I was like trying to figure out whether I thought this was genius or just weird like weirdo behavior like how did you figure this one out but uh, that
2: was my exact thought process there it's like is that despicable or phenomenal yeah
0: like <laughs> it, uh, i'm not you sure know, there's I a fine sh- line between those two there states is yeah this is the thing i
1: don't even have tiktok but occasionally tiktok videos make their way into my life whether it's via twitter or like a, a very rare occasion i go on facebook and now facebook's like one of the first things you see on facebook is like five or six tiktok style videos where they're just reels
2: like with, they call them
1: yeah reels yeah. that's it like we're not even going to pretend we're not just trying to fucking copy
0: what we've got Do you remember TikTok? when twitter had that for like three minutes well in uh, fairness twitter were there first with
2: vine and then they yeah. fucking killed it and ruined everything. It's like, and then uh, they chased it with, with fleets.
0: Was that what they called it? It, no, that it was really, stories. Uh, yeah, it was stories. It really has like life has just been downhill since the end of Vine. Yeah, well, if, just, if
2: Vine took off, TikTok wouldn't have existed.
0: Yeah, that is true. We That's just true. Have I want to say, like Vine I, was better. Vine was better. Vine infinitely better. Uh, less conspiracy theory whack jobs on my algorithm uh, on Vine. It was all just. Uh, Early Bo Burnham videos, I guess. Well, Mark, Listen, you watched
2: you... one second of one video, therefore 16 Andrew Tate videos. That's how it works. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: The thing is, Mark probably yeah. watches,
1: like, you know, all of the JFK videos or does his once-a-year rewatch of 9-11 stuff and then all of a sudden the conspiracy videos start appearing in his face.
0: I, I, I stopped I stopped the 9-11 content watching a couple of years ago because I realised it was probably not helping with my ongoing anxiety when it comes to flying, so I... Uh, Took, took me a while to get that out of my system. Uh, I do want to say, since we've been having this chat, I've had an email come through that uh, I thought was quite important to, uh, to, to read out on the air. So uh, if you would indulge me, gentlemen, um, I'm going to read this email to you both. Which uh, Nigerian says, prince did it come from? <laughs> It says, "Hello, Mark. My name is Dave Ryan. Huge fan of the show. Boom. We're listening to episode two eight seven honk piece. My delicate sensibilities were shocked, nay offended, to learn the context in which Garrett first heard tribute by Tenacious D. <laughs> did he actually I retre- this? To you? <laughs> he did. Yes. Once I would retre- mail it to you." Uh, Once I retrieved my monocle from my champagne flute I felt the need to write to you from the police you'll link to the cast estate that we all retreat to when we say we're on assignment. I sense the tension brewing between Jack and Garrett in the wake of this revelation, and I think the only solution is a surprise segment. Oh no. Yes, folks. What? With Marcus, my handsome conduit, I bring you Reverse Bastard Mind, where Garrett and Jack will answer 10 questions on the other person's specialist topic. Oh, no. Yes, that's right. Nothing keeps the peace better than putting Jack in a competitive game show environment.
1: Don't do it to me. I turn into a monster.
0: Each question carries a score of one point and there will be a tiebreaker question should it be needed. I don't think it will. Uh, I should it's a point zero, out, 0 tie. <laughs> I, I should point out, I do not know what the tie... To- I mean, I can presume what Jax on Garrett will be, but uh, I have not read the questions. I do not know what the topics are, so I'm as blind on this as you two are at this it's
2: point. has got to be TNA versus Chelsea, has it not? <laughs> sure I am, um, the most one-dimensional man in the history of existence. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way it's not TNA. <laughs> do you
1: know so what, they- be? messaged me during the week and he was like oh i was i was laughing at garrett's gimmick of like finally seeing the tenacious d is a great payoff and then he goes to me what was the other thing that garrett said he didn't really know too much about and i was like you know what i can't remember what it was but he said quite a few of them now i know why he sent me that (laughs) message
2: (laughs) he was fishing it's been a trap all along this entire
0: podcast is a trap (laughs) <laughs> well, Jack, I can tell you that you're not going first, so you have a few minutes to, to kind of sit and bide your time. <laughs> to just uh, but think abyss. <laughs> abyss. 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 <Yeah. laughs> oh, 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 abyss. <laughs> Um, Garrett, you are up first. You'll be answering questions on Jack's specialist topic, which is pieces of pop culture trivia that are useful only in pub quiz scenarios. (laughs) Wow.
1: Uh, (laughs) I thought you would get Chelsea and might have half a chance, but you might might be screwed, mate. Just
2: say John Terry to everything, just like you say Abyss to everything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Note to myself,
0: I, I may now open the Garrett quiz, so here we are. All right, so... Uh, Garrett, you have 10 questions. Yeah. Uh, you'll get one point for each correct answer. Um, if you don't know, Jack, you are welcome to answer, but you're not getting any points for it. Uh, these multiple choice uh,
2: gimmicks, or do I have to literally come up with answers?
0: Uh, there are... The, the questions are, are are different for each one, so... Oh um David's yeah, He's, so he's, he's not even here,
2: up. and he's torturing me. He's sitting I'm in the asshole of Kerry, which is actually surprisingly close to me.
0: I'm going to go get revenge after this show. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Charlie is awful.
1: You know, the average English, English person would hear Dave is in the Arts of Gary" and they would not know that it's a place. <laughs> and that
0: is quite a sentence. All right, I'm just opening up a spreadsheet and just making myself a quick...
2: I'm one quarter kerry by the way, so I can bury Kerry all I want. Bury Kerry. Kerry blood. I'm ashamed of it every day.
0: <laughs> Alright, Garrett, uh, yeah. if you are ready, and you don't really have a uh, say in this matter, uh, your first question. The next RCW show is entitled That's Just What Jesus Said, Sir. What film was this a reference to?
2: Uh War of the Buttons.
0: That is incorrect. Sam.
2: <laughs> Jack?
1: I believe it is uh, Life of Brian by Monty Python. <laughs>
0: That would be correct. Boo! Yeah. Question number two. Yeah. And I feel like this one's a bit a bit unfair, but, you know, whatever. We'll, we'll go with it. What was so significant about the release date of Nickelback's uh, most famous album, Silver Side Up? I'm going to say it was on 9-11. Yeah, come on. It has to be. You are correct. Yeah. As as, as Dave has uh, put it here specifically, it was the worst thing to happen on September 11th, 2001. It was
2: released the same day as the original Advance Wars. That's what was significant. (laughs) By the way, two 9-11 references in the first
1: 10 minutes is not what I feel comfortable (laughs) with on this podcast. One of them was my fault, in fairness.
0: This podcast is just all butter and planes. All right, uh, number three. In popular video game Tunic, what is the name? First of all, how is this a pub quiz question? But whatever. In popular video game Tunic, what is the name given to the player character? He's, He's a little fox boy. This is a really unfair question because I wouldn't even know the answer to this question.
2: I played this game... I finished this game.
0: The the the, the chosen one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, G- Jeff Jarrett, uh, also bwah, known bwah. as as known as the the Ruin Seeker i was gonna say again, steve <laughs> nobody on earth that's clearly buried in front
2: of like 700 shitty puzzles no one could possibly solve And then you learn. <laughs> i, you, I you don't see, even have this in the game you see yourself in the mirror and it's just the words ruined seeker come up but they don't even tell you what it, they mean you're just confused
0: yeah that that one's harsh question four what influential 2000s band released the seminal album is this it on july 30th 2001
2: I'm just gonna say tenacious D. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not, in fact, tenacious D. Damn! It it
1: would be the Strokes.
0: Yes, it was the Strokes. Do you you know how many strokes? Garrett. Actually, if I say the Strokes, does does that give you kind of any like any semblance of any songs that you might know by them?
2: There's the My World theme because that's the name (laughs) of Jeff Jarrett's finishing move.
0: Close enough. The stroke. There you go. Jarrett's a genius. Question five. As a noted fan of Kelsey Grammar and cinema, what was Kelsey's character's name in smash hit Money Plane?
2: I don't know. <laughs> um, Jeremy Planington.
0: <laughs> uh, Jack, do you know the correct answer to this question?
1: <laughs> it's Darius Emmanuel Crouch Third. <laughs> Also known as the Rumble, by the way. And I'm I laughing. just want
0: to point, Jack. I just want to point out that Gary gets a bonus half point because you said his full name. <laughs> no. <laughs> why would dave
1: do that to me (laughs) i was so stoked to remember all of that because every time me and dave talk about it and we 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 mention his name we do the whole name and the aka and we both giggle like school children i I hate him that he's done me like that.
2: everything dave does is just a long-term trap to ruin our lives on the podcast how is he doing this
0: to me from from somewhere else that is that is some phenomenal foresight. Well done, Dave. Dave is is obviously howling to himself right now he as he hears is this.
2: So fucking pleased with himself right he, now. Uh, can, oh, oh. I can
0: hear him cackling to himself, listening back to this. It's like he's just sent a picture of his dinner right now, and I know he's laughing over dinner right now at this very second. Question three. Oh, sorry, question six. I was like, have uh, we only band- fucking done three? <laughs> <laughs> question six. What band released the following albums? Pablo, Honey, Kid A, and the Bens. I'm going to stick with
2: Tenacious D. Tenacious D is my answer to every music question now. <laughs> it is. Uh,
0: unfortunately, it's. Uh, no, it's I don't radiated. want to answer
1: these questions anymore.
0: You know? <laughs> because I feel like if I say what the answer is now, Dave's going to screw me somehow. I, I can confirm that there's no more traps like that, Jack. So you can okay, say that's from exactly this point what they would want us to think. It's
1: yeah. Radiohead. And if it says underneath it, it's like Jack feels like he's being trapped. So lull him into a full sense of fury. <laughs> so it says Radiohead. Then give Garen an extra point. I would be so goddamn fuming right now.
0: Uh, hey, Garrett, your, your specialist top topic, it's a Tenacious D question. Uh, cool. You recently enjoyed a scintillating live rendition of Tenacious D's Tribute. Which of the following people did not make a cameo in the Tribute music video? They did hey. play the video,
2: by the way, as they did the karaoke. So I've seen the video too. Not that it's going to help. Right. I'm still
0: going to get this Probably wrong. Probably not. But let it Probably. know that I have seen the trailer or the video. All right, so uh, you've got. So this is so did not make a cameo in the tribute music video. Uh, A, Severance's Ben Stiller. B, Dave Grohl. And C, Meatloaf. I'm going to say Ben Stiller. Incorrect. It Um, was Meatloaf. Unfortunately, the answer is Meatloaf.
2: I got bad out of hell.
0: He's been gone. Question eight (laughs) In the world of football, who is Chelsea FC's all time leading scorer? Um, isn't it just Frank Lampard? That is correct, it is Frank Lampard. Yeah. Jack, do you have the specific amount of goals? Uh is it two hundred and thirteen? Oh, two hundred and eleven. Oh Jack, please damn. be
2: proud of me for actually knowing the Chelsea answer. No, I mean it's it's fair play. Fair play.
0: Thank you. Question thank, nine. Thank you for your pride. In the film Morbius, what is the name of (laughs) Morbius's adopted brother as portrayed like a man being held against his will by Matt Smith?
2: Oh, no. (laughs) No. Nope. What do you mean, no? It's not there. You'll say it and I'll remember it, but it's not there. I, I, I saw that movie a year ago now and have cast it out of my brain.
1: So he calls him Milo. Uh, that is the correct the movie yeah it but is, I think he has another name but I can't remember but I know he, I know his nickname is Milo
2: his name is Evil Morbius
0: all right Not and question question 10 and again I'm reading this and I don't see how this is a, a pop culture pop quiz question but look Dave's bottom uh, we all know it I'll have to refer to Dave uh, off air about this a literature question who wrote the following I ran out of toilet paper brother help
2: Oh, Hulk. Hogan, it? That's a literary masterpiece. <laughs> I don't need any more. That's Hulk Hogan's best tweet. Actually, no, his his best tweet is still the I worked that they worked into a shoot one, but he deleted oh, that. So it I, think is I, the, I it ran is out the of 20 minutes. Now his best tweet. Alright. That All was right. the same Fair week like, he fucking joined Scientology too. So it's like that was a good manner week for Hulk Hogan. How is that uh Garrett's not gonna know the answer to this question? <laughs> so I'm funny. way too online not to have seen that tweet.
1: Yeah, he worked himself into a shoot.
0: Uh, All right, Garrett, you have ended up with three and a half points there out of a possible ten. Oh, my God, um, if there's
1: ten TNA questions, I am dead in the water here, lads.
0: The bar is now set at what I can only assume is a sky-high number of points. This is Dave talking. Um, we will now move on to Jackie Lasers. Jack, you will be answering questions on the little-known interest of Garrett's, the life and times of total non-stop action wrestling.
1: Wow. I knew it. I am out. At- Absolutely bummed.
0: <laughs> all right, all right. Total non-stop Jackson crossed the oh, That's it. He really needed to work on that. Yeah. All right, question one. In TNA, Vince Russo created a faction called SEX that included such illustrious members as Glyn Gilberti, Sonny Siaki, BG James, Raven, and Trinity. What did SEX stand for?
1: Um... Super extreme xylophones. <laughs> I don't know. I really haven't. I
0: mean, he going. got he got the extreme, but he got it in the, the, wrong the wrong place. Letter, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh yes. no,
1: he didn't need X with X. Oh oh. oh.
0: It is sports oh, entertainment. Garrett, extreme. Please please do the honors. Yes, sports entertainment extreme. Question two, which of these has not been a TNA stipulation match? The Silent Night, Bloody Night match, the Double Blindfold match, the Cuffed in the Cage match, the Lockbox Challenge, the Reverse Battle Royal, or none of the above?
1: It all sounds so dumb. I know Reverse Battle Royal was one. I know the Silent Night, Bloody Night thing is. Lockbox box challenge doesn't sound real. The thing is, they could all be TNA matches. No, I, d- I say none of the above. I think they're all real matches. Does that what that means in the question?
0: That would be what that means in the question, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. So they're all TNA matches, yeah.
0: Garrett, I refer to you. They are, in fact, all real matches. <laughs> Yes, I knew it. I knew he was trying to screw me on that one. So now this is interesting because Dave has here ticked down the double blindfold match. And I was interested because I, I was pretty convinced there was a double blindfold match at some point.
2: Well, what would you define as double blind? Like there's matches where two people wore blindfolds.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe it had a
2: different name. How would it be double blind? They had two blindfolds? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, as in like they're both blindfolded, but that's what a blindfold match is. So un- Hmm.
2: Dave has asked a bad question. He needed a TNA historian to look over these and be like, Dave?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ev- ev- I'm, I'm. Every I'm, match
2: I'm... is a double blindfold match. Unless I said you put two blindfolds on somebody. <laughs> All right. Maybe, see,
0: maybe that is what he actually does mean there. Um, but I, you know what? I'm going to give Jack the point. I, I'm, you know, <laughs>
1: it's may, it may be the only one I get. So. Yeah, Dave if, is if, wrong. If, Doc if,
0: Dave a point. If Garrett is confused, then uh, I'm I'm going to give uh, Jack the point on that one. I mean,
1: one. in fairness, I got Garrett half a point, so I think mm. it's the least he can do.
0: Question three. What WWE tag team were famously released after one member of the team was featured on camera at a TNA event?
1: So a WWE tag team were at TNA. They got spotted on camera. So
0: one of them, one member of the team was featured on camera in the crowd. Okay
1: um some like crappy mid 2000 how about is it was it uh no is it the Basham brothers
0: is that right well that's that's a good pull in terms of uh mid 2000s tag teams unfortunately it was the Highlanders
1: uh are they um are they the war machine no
0: no, no, they're not. <laughs> oh, no, what were no, they, Vi- they Vi- Viking Raiders? I, I just, yeah. No, 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 no. The Highlanders were uh, a, a time before uh, War Machine, much, much okay. before. Yeah. Um,
1: okay. I don't, I don't even, like, right now, if you said for a million points and a million pounds, name one of the Highlanders, I'd, I would be, yes. No, I, I know no one
0: choice. of them was Robbie. I don't remember who the other one was. Was Rory. it Rory? Robbie yeah, and Robbie.
2: McAllister.
0: That's the ones. All right. Question four. Which of the following WWE champions never competed in TNA? CM Punk, muffin enthusiast. John Moxley, Cupcakes. bleeding enthusiast. Brian Danielson, apple jizz enthusiast. <laughs> i just going to move on from that. Seth Rollins, being a big, stupid dickhead enthusiast. Or E, all of the above. So which of the following never competed in TNA?
1: I know CM Punk was in TNA because it was on Garrett's podcast. Hell yeah.
0: Um You've got, got to be kidding one... me. TNAchad dot yeah. com.
1: Isn't it um I'm 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 not a racist.com or something, whatever they've set up for him. I love the
0: Harris <laughs> Brothers.com. Um
1: Let me... So what were the other ones?
0: Danielson John Moxley and Seth Rollins or all of the above?
1: Hmm. As in all of the above were in TNA.
0: So all of the above never competed in TNA. Oh, right. Okay. So that
1: that's not true then. Uh, Moxley,
2: Danielson. I should have known we don't have news for today. I should have known. <laughs> 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 because when we started, I was like, oh, we don't have news today. Why don't we have news today? Ugh, everything's a trap. It's because it was a slow week, Garrett. Uh, I, uh, I think
1: it's between Moxley and Danielson. I'm going to go Danielson.
0: Gary Kidney, I refer to you.
2: Do, do you want me to tell him whether he's right or not every time?
0: Um, you know, just for now at least.
2: You're correct. Oh, I? John Boxley I, I did one say, dark
0: match in 2009. With his pink hair, stupid pink hair at the time. I don't recall Seth Rollins, or I guess Tyler Black. I don't remember. I have no recollection of that at all. He did one squash match in
2: 2006 where LAX absolutely murdered him. Which I post on Twitter uh, all the time, just to be petty. Uh, was that like on impact or explosion? It was on impact. It was in like overall no rec- six No recollection of that at all. Where we Tyler Black just got thrown around by Hernandez.
0: That's always a good time.
2: I just feel right, like Dan- right.
1: Danielson. Like I watched that documentary about him um, that he made with Colt Cabana ages ago, and he was like a sort of died in the war ROH guy. And there was nothing on there about him being in TNA. So that was that was my logic. I, I, I don't know why, but I I just felt like Seth Rollins, like, he's such a tryhard that he would have gone in for every tiny little piece of anything that he could get before he made it to WWE. And yeah, I really didn't know about Moxley. I haven't got a clue.
0: He could have been there by accident and wrestled a match. Question five. Which of the following did not happen in TNA? I feel like... Dave is just doing this as as a point to show how ridiculous TNA has been over the years. But anyway, it's a personal podcast
2: once again by Days of Thunder.
0: Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. So which of the following did not happen in TNA? A, Shark Boy awakes from a coma convinced he is Stone Cold Steve Austin. That definitely happened.
1: That happened. I know that that happened.
0: B, Abyss is imbued with magical ass kicking powers by Hulk Hogan's Hall of Fame ring.
1: That happened too. See, he's now now kind of in my era of TNA.
0: C, the building legitimately catches fire during a live pay-per-view. Right. D, Eddie Kingston mows down a child Taylor Swift style with a car.
1: Taylor (laughs) Swift style?
0: (laughs) E, Mickey James was pushed in front of a Trek train by James Storm. Or F, none of the above.
1: Well, as in none of
0: those things happened. Well, we know... Oh so so none of the above means that it was a double D, negative of none the of them not happened yeah. Dave work yeah, on so your question I mean they questions. all happened
1: I mean they're all stupid enough to have happened I know two of them happened He's saying which of these didn't happen
0: Yeah or I, F meaning they all happened
1: I think they all happened
0: that your final answer? Yeah they did all happen the answer well done, is F in fact they did all happen I just off knew Fire he
2: Harry was justice trying to sell six. Abyss was powered by the Hall of Fame ring. I don't remember the others. I don't.
0: Uh, I'm sorry. You you don't mention Hard Justice if you say that you have to mention the Monty Brown promo. That's that's the rule. That's the cardinal rule. C- Can I hypocrite? just point out. one half hippo, one half elephant? How, How did? How did Mickey James survive being shoved in front of a train, by the way? That's a question we will never know. The power of the knockouts division, I guess. Thing, when she came back in
2: 2021, people were like, I thought you got pushed in front of a train. She wrestled like two weeks after she was pulled and pushed in front of a train. Learn your TNA history, nerds. <laughs> oh, they're the ones who are the nerds, yeah. I'm a I just pretty want to point cool out- man. I don't know what you're saying, Jackie.
0: I just want to point out, Jack, that you only need one more point, and you have already won this quiz. So we are oh on my question God. six
2: by just so. g- guessing based on no, the.
0: Though, depending on how this goes, I might take away that first point from you to to add the tension to this. So we'll see. Jack
2: has had a larger number of multiple choice questions. Yes, I know. I've also noticed that.
0: I'll be honest, Garrett, I feel like that is purely the fault of your source material and not on on anyone else. I think it's
2: on Dave Ryan. I think that's solely (laughs) who it's on right now.
1: (laughs) I feel like this whole thing is like a low-key shade on TNA because he's like, every question is like, all of this dumb shit happened in that dumb promotion. The
0: irony why why he has a podcast on WCW Thunder. But anyway, question six. What is the name of Abyss's successful lawyer brother who looks and behaves very similarly to Abyss but is definitely in no way his brother Chris, you know, Abyss? Is it Joseph Park?
1: isn't it? It's a Joseph Park Esquire or something like Oh, that.
0: look at that. Spot on. It is, in fact, Joseph Park Esquire. Bang, bang,
1: bang. Yes, I knew that. <laughs> so, right, I did I'm say
0: gonna say think of first, I'm going to put that first point in yellow for the time being and come back to it just to just, keep the tension up here for I'm, a second. I'm just trying to screw me. Now I will say, uh, Dave, and his continuing efforts to uh, make a very poor quiz here, he's not actually given the correct answer to this. He's not put he's not put the correct answer down at all uh, in terms of like a tick next to the right answer. I think I know what the answer is here, but I will refer to to Garrett afterwards, so we'll, we'll see what happens. Which of the following IWGP heavyweight champions never competed in TNA? Is it A. Tetsuya Naito? B. Kota Ibushi? C Shinsuke Nakamura, D Hiroshi Tanahashi, or E all of the above.
1: Oh, I mean, I just, I, I'm gonna gimmick all of the above again because <laughs> I, I don't know.
2: It's a Bushi.
0: Yeah, I thought it was a Bushi as well, but I was, I was, I was like 99% sure, but uh, there we go. Okay, all right. <laughs> Question eight. What TNA wrestler won a lawsuit against a Robert Rodriguez movie for copyright infringement to the tune of $200,000? Uh, uh, uh.
1: <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Why, though? Robert Rodriguez, what movies does he have? He's, um... It makes me want to say, uh, it makes me want to answer Abyss again, because he's just weird Robert Rodriguez movie thing.
2: Uh, Gar Kidney? This requires me knowing what movie, I assume that's Sharkboy and Lava
0: Girl, right? <laughs> that would be in fact Sharkboy and Lava Girl, yes. Oh, he I had like, a movie! That, that, that
2: relies on me knowing the, the, the movies of Robert Rodriguez, but Sharkboy sued somebody, <laughs> so that's... <laughs> He owned the Sharkboy IP, and then they made Sharkboy and Lavagirl. And he's like, "Wait a minute, that's my name!" And he won.
0: Yeah. Question nine: In a wrestling mystery that has endured through the ages, please answer the following: What is "relic" spelled backwards?
1: (laughs) What is "relic" spelled backwards? Killer.
2: (laughs) Mightenace says yes for one point. Yes. (laughs) I get a point. I get a point for that. (laughs) I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing I have you have been robbed and screwed. Yeah. Dave Ryan like, it's a is funny, out to it, get, me
0: It's a funny bit, but at the same time, that that's a that's a that's a harsh a harsh Just question.
2: Disgusting. I am furious I mean the Frank Lampard question was very easy in fairness. I it's know nice. I know things about Chelsea. Now you've taken over I thought you were proud of me for getting that right, and now you're like every idiot no. who has ever watched football <laughs> should get that right. And now I feel bad about myself, Jack. Jeez. <laughs> I love
0: you, Derek. <laughs> all right. And, and question 10, and you're going to have to give me a minute here, but um, all right. You know, they say that all men aren't created equal. But you look <laughs> at me and you look at Samoa Joe and you can see that statement is not true. Give, see, you know, normally, you give, this, you, give this some more sauce, Mark, come on. see, no I'm not doing Scott Steiner it's just not <laughs> happening see normally if you go one on one with another wrestler you got a 50-50% chance of winning but I'm a genetic freak and I'm not normal so you get a 25% chance at best at beat me Then you add Kurt Angle to the mix. Your chances of winning drastic go down. This sounds like the fucking Charlie and Dennis bit from like one of the early seasons of Always Sunny. See, the three-way sacrifice, you got a 33 and a third chance of winning, but I, I got a 66 and two first chance of winning because Kurt Angle knows he can't beat me and he's not even going to try So Samoa Joe, you take your 33 and a third chance minus my 25% chance and you got an eight and third chance of winning a sacrifice. But then you take my 75% chance of winning if we was to go one-on-one and then add 66 and two-thirds percents, I've got 141 and two-thirds chance of winning a sacrifice. My question is, the numbers don't lie. So what did they spell for Samoa Joe at sacrifice?
1: Um, That Scott Steiner... Was going to beat him in a catch-as-catch-can professional
2: wrestling battle? I, I don't know. They spell disaster, Jack. Come on.
0: They do spell disaster. You had I to see. read between the lines to, to, to really get to that one.
1: I I mean, I, I really do not know. <laughs> but well, I am going to immediately seek out that promo when we are finished. Have
0: you never heard it's- the Steiner Math promo? No. How? It's... it's, I mean, I'm not going to say it's like Garrett not hearing tribute, but... You know, considering I mean, it
1: we not are... at all like that, is it? If it didn't happen well, in that <sighs> era
2: when TNA was good, I probably don't no, know. But no, but you're on like, Twitter. If you if you're on in the internet, like this is like the most famous thing in the history of TNA now. Like this has been memed to death far beyond like this has been memed so far that when Cyberpunk were putting out their yellow square delayed things every two weeks, there was like four of them every day that just had the Steiner math promo on them. <laughs> That's how far this promo has gone. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Well,
1: I've,
0: yeah, I've managed to miss it, I guess. So oh my know. God. I don't well, to tell you. I, um, all I can tell you is that Jack Lazel has in fact won another quiz Rob, here yes. on Link to the Cast. Yes. Um, but for the bants, um, a tiebreaker question was submitted as well, and just for the hell of it, because Dave put the work in, we're going to just work just put in the tiebreaker question as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a worked quiz to be honest. For the tiebreaker question, each person must submit a guess and a number. In the event both men pick the same answer. The closest number will be the winner. The question simply is who has won more major titles, Chelsea FC or Jeff Jarrett? Okay. For clarification, for Chelsea, I'm counting the Premier League titles, FA Cups, Champions League, and Europa Leagues only. Get to fuck with the others. For Jeff Jarrett, I will be counting all singles titles mid-card and above across WWE, WCW, TNA, and AAA. So anything, I guess, prior to like 93 is out of the question.
1: I mean, if he's chucking the FA, he's chucking the FA Cups and the League Cups out.
0: No, no, they're in the FA Cup. So Premier League titles, FA Cups, Champions League and Europa League. So I'm guessing the League Cups aren't in there. No,
1: And no Cup Winners Cup. Okay.
2: No yeah,
0: Cup Winners your
2: Cup. titles, come on. Yeah, come on now.
1: I know, well, I know the exact number of that. <laughs> so he's, I've just got to guess whether or not um, Jeff Jarrett got more. Than that because I don't want to gimmick it off to Garrett. What do I do? Do I guess a number?
0: Well, How so it- basically, you will both um make a decision on who you think one more, uh and then at that point, I'll also get the the number from both of you. So I'll wait until you both have your decisions for both your your answer and your number. I'm signed with double okay. J. I'll, okay, Garrett's in there with double J. Jack.
1: I also think it's Jeff Jarrett because wrestling is dumb.
2: Um, and <laughs> solid the, logic. <laughs> yeah. How dare you accuse the king of the mountain, Jeff Jarrett, of not having perfectly valid championship wins? Um, but yeah, but the thing is, you can just, you know, like,
0: come on, Garrett. We all know. All right. Well, what what, Crucially, now I need a number from both of you. Okay. And I what, will. Wait, the I will number go for Jack Jarrett or the number for Chelsea? For, for Jared, so because right. you've both gone with Jeff Jarrett. No, no, no. It's just that you've both gone with Jeff Jarrett, well, so I, I need to We're both, both of you, wrong,
2: now. and it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that then you're both, you know, then that's the end of the quiz. But you've but got both with Jeff, Jeff Jarrett. If so if we're
2: if it's Chelsea,
0: because we're both hey, wrong, we're doing the tiebreaker. We're here now. It's our Friday evening, is and we're going Jared to do this. Or Chelsea, right? <laughs> okay. The answer is Jeff Jarrett. Okay, so, so fair well, enough. Now, now we do have so, to go to the tiebreaker because we're not both wrong. Jesus. Can I get a number from... I'll start with Jack.
1: Well, the thing is, whatever a number I say, Gara's just going to go one higher or one lower, (laughs)
0: so we should message you what the number is.
2: Boo! (laughs) Mr.
0: Logical (laughs) Quiz over here being like... I mean, I just want to point out, Jack, you have won the quiz already, all right? So this this is is how we operate, you see. This is how psychotic you are.
1: So Chelsea have won the Premier League six times. They've won the FA Cup eight times. They've won the Champions League twice. They've won the Europa League twice. So therefore, that number is 20. So I'm going to guess 21 titles for Jeff Jarrett. Uh,
0: I'm going to say 22, Mark. (laughs) Jack, is it bang on with 21? (laughs) Fuck! (laughs) God damn it! (laughs) Absolutely shove that up, yeah.
1: (laughs)
2: listen Listen! how spiteful he is as a winner he was given an easier quiz and now he is rubbing rubbing it in my poor face your poor humble
1: your face shove it right up you son
0: garrett it's not like it's infamously known that jack not only is a bad loser he is in fact a bad winner as well
1: (laughs) disgusting behavior I mean, come on! I mean, it's an impressive, uh, it's impressive. <sighs> yes.
0: Six Intercontinental titles, three U.S. titles, four WCW titles, six NWA heavyweight titles, and two Triple R Mega Championships. J, twenty-one.
1: No. no wonder he didn't want to count Chelsea's. By the way, very respectable haul of five league cups. Okay. Not a real trophy. Oh, In 65, that- 98, 2005,
2: 2007, and 2015, uh, if you must uh, M- know. Mark, start with me. We're talking about Psychonauts. Start with me, please. <laughs> yeah, you know
0: what? Well, I was going to say, I was going to have Jack go on a roll, but I'll start with you first, Garrett, so uh, Jack can go and uh, get a victory swig of, of Pepsi Cola or whatever. We can punish Garrett, him yeah, by having watching- to hear about
2: Psychonauts again. <laughs>
0: yeah see you you, uh you linked this in the chat the other day i haven't had a chance to look at this yet but what exactly is this psychonauts documentary about so obviously psychonauts yes
2: it is about the development of psychonauts 2 so for the six years it took them to make psychonauts 2 the entire time they had a documentary crew with there with them documenting the day-by-day process of making this video game and they just released this week that documentary it is 32 parts long i believe it comes out to about 22 hours in total to watch all of it Shh, it is a, a, fucking a, a hefty piece of video game documentary work i have watched all of it i watched all of it in like four days um, as, as a person who hasn't even played psychonauts either so i don't even have like the the, the intrigue of being like ooh, i get to see how the game i i, I played was made i'm like ooh, a deep dive into video game development, something that's generally kind of kept close to the chest in ways that we don't really understand. And as you watch this documentary, you understand why they keep it close to the chest, because all these people seemed miserable. This development seemed like hell. (laughs) It was absolute torture. It's such an interesting behind-the-scenes look at making a major game, like a real big a game that has like expectations behind it and a thing people expect psychonauts to be which is a thing that they focus it on a lot it's like is this psychonautical which is one of those vague loose terms that you kind of know it when you see it but when you're making a game you can't be like ah yes the famous psychonautical principle we, we shall narrow down on that which is ultimately why the game took six years but it's it's so interesting to watch like it starts out so tim Schafer is like we're making psychonauts 2 and i don't want to like lead the project i'll kind of stand to the side i'll write the project and then i'll kind of meddle a little bit and then some other guy, zach mcclendon who they brought in who was um he made worked on bioshock and he worked in some other games uh he was the the project lead and so the first like three years of the project are like a weird not quite power struggle but like zach is kind of like the stepdad of the game and Tim Schafer is like the he's the Psychonauts guy so the whole time like the team are kind of they're always kind of looking to Tim even though Tim's not the project lead but they're still always looking to Tim and there's you can see like communication breakdown between this team over the course of like three or four years to the point where uh, Zach McClendon ends up leaving the project and just seeing that happen over time where like they're just flying the wall during meetings getting reaction shots to the project lead like shooting down somebody's idea and then you can see like the heartbreaking in the eyes of the person he shot down and then the next scene is like that person then left the studio and like you can see uh, it's obviously it it is like it's a a documentary They, they do build narratives but you can see that kind of stuff happen in real time and you can see the communication breakdown in real time and you can see everything like that's both good and bad about video games you can see like the tension between art and design and production and engineering. You can see how uh, all the meetings leave people just utterly exhausted because it's death by meetings. You can see like management styles and you can see how people get burned out in the middle of a project when they've been working on it for three years. It still looks like shit and doesn't feel any good to play. And everyone gets like super demoralized and starts like going for each other's throats. And like it comes out fine. It's a game everybody loves. Everybody's happy by the time they get all the way through the this process all the way through to 2021. And then there's also like the little, little uh, undercurrent of it of during this period, Double Fine was bought by Microsoft. How did that change the project during this period? COVID happened. How did that affect this project? So you, I think it's it's not quite warts and all, because there's some stuff they very clearly don't cover and they do leave out. And you, you, you're you like nibbling at the edges of some of the stories that happened during development, the kind of the, the deeper and more personal stuff that I'd imagine they didn't want to air out in public. So it's, it's not quite everything you would have wanted because there is some stuff it's like, what really did happen there? Like when the project lead leaves. You kind of see the the ramp up to him leaving, but they don't actually really talk about the moment of him leaving and why he left and what they're going to do afterward that much because they just want to move on from that. And it's it's one of the most interesting things I've watched in a very long time. As I said, just to get that fly-in-the-wall perspective of game development, which is a thing people just don't understand how it works, me included. Like, people, like, game development is this, like, you, you understand how a film is made. It's like people stand at a set, and they shoot it, and then they edit it, and it's a film. It's, a, it's not, like, a, a difficult thing to comprehend. Whereas video games are this weird mix of art and then science because you have like all the technical machinery behind it and all the programming. And you don't really understand how those two things come together until you see people do it over the course of six years. And you you will get so much sympathy for why like games ship in the state they do. that even after six years, like this game, when they put it out the door, they're like, we know of like a hundred bugs in this game that we just don't have the time to fix. Because this game had an original release date of 2018, it's now 2021, <laughs> and a, a whole different publisher later, it has to go out the door. like Because they were yeah. originally being published by Starbreeze, and then Starbreeze went into some weird crime shit, <laughs> and then obviously Microsoft bought them. And like you see even the stress on Tim Schafer, like the, the money stuff, where it's like, this game isn't where we want it to be. But where we are with the money we have at the moment, it has to get out. And then like, Microsoft buy them and that gives them more time. And then COVID weirdly gives them more time because they were meant to release, I think, in the summer of 2020. And then they got an extra year, but then that extra year was full of like strife. And you could see like the physical toll COVID took on all those people as they were trying to finish out this game and get to the finish line. I don't know, all of that stuff, it's just so fascinating to watch. It's the, As I said, it's the most interesting thing I've watched in, in a long time but the fact that I blitzed through 22 hours of it over the course of four days tells you that I wanted to watch a lot because this isn't the first documentary. They made a documentary about Broken Age as well, Double Fight Adventure, which I, I haven't watched but I think I will after this. I think that development was a little smoother because like 3D platformers are so hard. I don't know if you know that, guys, like the iteration of the levels you see go through in in this documentary of where they start out as really kind of boring and then they're like, how do we make this Psychonauts? And then they try and do that and that doesn't work either. And they reboot a lot of the levels in this game three or four times until they finally get to the idea, the thing that makes it Psychonauts and not just a, a generic 3D platform level. And, like, that process exhausted those human beings. Like, you really see the physical cost this game took on those human beings over the course of six years.
0: Well, that's the thing, because, you know, if you get to the point where you decide, okay, um, we need to just completely overhaul this level, you could be looking at minimum... Three months worth of work that you either have had to flick, I mean, it could be even longer, but at least to get up to where you was before, you're looking anywhere from three to six months. But you might have like the, the framework of some of the programming is probably in there. But in terms of like the art assets, the level design, the feel of it, to start all over that kind of process and to have to do it several times is just the stuff of nightmares and you know like i'm in the process of making uh, my my first game at the moment and it's just me and one other person and i've had people say to me like how would you feel about wanting to to work in like a bigger team or on like a triple a game and i was like honestly it sounds like hell it sounds like the worst fucking thing known to man because you're such a tiny like part of this such a this kind of bigger machine and you know as you point out this thing took six years to make um and that just the idea of working on one thing for six years and obviously there are different aspects to that that you work along the way but i i just couldn't i couldn't do it uh, it would drive me up the wall um so i, I definitely want to I, I doubt i would be able to watch all of this but i definitely want to kind of dive into some of this and see and you know these sorts of like biographies i mean one of the most interesting documentaries of this nature it's not video game related but the metallica uh, uh documentary they had for *St. anger where they <laughs> were all just a bunch of petty like post-alcoholic just the worst fucking middle-aged men you've ever seen in your life Going through the process of making a bad album, it is—it is fascinating. Uh, Some kind in, of in, monster, by the way, is what that was called, and it yeah, is
2: it's, brilliant. Yeah, and I think that it's, that's an interesting f- contrast to this because I don't think anybody, when you watch this documentary, ever goes into like making psychonauts in bad faith like that's what's the kind of crushing part of it it's like everybody goes into making this game super duper excited they really want to work of and course. make a good Psychonauts game and it just breaks them over the course of six years and it's like it's it, it's not the case that like they, they went in there being like oh let's fight with that person it's just like it, over the course of that process it just breaks people down and you mentioned like the size of the studio and the size of the team like I think it's 60, 60 or 70 people made this game or at least for most of the project they dragged on some more teams toward the end to get it over the line. And when you think, like, that's a lot of people, but then you think about how, like, the, the average Ubisoft game is made by thousands in, like, multiple countries across the world. They have all these studios all over the place, some of them which are working on art, some of which are working on design, some are coding, some are, like, bits and bobs are all flooded into this game from, like, thousands of employees across probably dozens of countries. And you just think, if it's this bad for 60 people in the same building, how do they do it for like thousands of people spread across the world? How do, how can you coordinate that? It's insane to even think about.
0: Yeah. Like it's, it's bad enough. um, You know, back in the day when me and Jack were in a band and trying to construct a song, like a three-minute song between four people in the same room, that in itself could become quite a contentious thing to to kind of like negotiate. Sometimes, but as you mentioned, sixty plus people, a hundred plus people, thousands of people, the the coordination that has to go into bringing all of these things between. the 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 overall kind of like vision of what the the project is the visual style the programming the and the programming which is split into multiple layers between technical art just the actual like science of how the 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 engine works um the the animation the 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 composition everything to bring that all together it, it it is a miracle that any game ever gets made because of how much has to go into it and i can't remember um i can't remember what came out last year But there was, like, a backlash from developers who got re... I I can't remember. I feel like it was, like, an innocuous tweet from some clown. And a bunch of developers came out and were showing off, like, um, not even, like, early prototypes of their games, but games that were well into development and how unfinished they still looked. Because it's like, look this game doesn't look like the game that you see until right up until the the deadline because so much of the game is just about getting the feel for it long before you even kind of worry about like the the, the assets and the animation that sort of stuff and it's just and you know it's something that I'm going to see firsthand myself no doubt over the next like 12 to 18 months getting all that stuff tied together and and out the door uh, it's why why anyone does this uh, it's kind of like baffling sometimes. And the other thing as well, and we never find this out. I'm so fascinated about what Microsoft's return on investment for this was because it was out on Game Pass. So like, where is the money that Microsoft made back from this fucking thing? I, none of us will ever know. The PS4 game sales. Mm, yes. All three of them. <laughs>
2: yeah. But th- it's the time and money of it all as well. Yeah. Or it's like, if you had told these people in 2015, it's like, actually guys, you're going to have six years to make this. Like that would have relieved so much pressure on these human beings if they had known then they have six years to make the game, as opposed to like obviously original release day 2018. I think it it just slipped to 2019 even before they thought like all right this is our hard release date. And there's periods in that at that time where they're like, we have to get something like this doesn't feel good. We don't really like it. It's not, again, what they call psychonautical. It doesn't feel like psychonauts. It doesn't feel like the true successor to the first game. But we are reaching the stage where like time and money is running out. So we have to get something we can at least be either proud of or finish and put it out. And that pressure on those people, it's it's so unfair there's no alternative to it and like uh, there's there's uh a very honest discussions about crunch in video games coming in this documentary ones that well, like might be cancelable i'd say if, if the wrong people watched it but you get like very honest like if we have this much time and this much money in order to make something we can be proud of we have to put too much time into it and like a lot of these people are artists they're not like this isn't a job to them it's art to them And they don't want to put out something they're not proud of. And that's where a lot of the crunch comes from, because time and money. And uh, like, there's no excuse for big studios for that, I don't think. Like, if you're a Nintendo, you can just say, let's take another four months, take another three months, take another five months, we'll fill in the gap. Same if you're like a a 2K with with any of their big games. And like uh, the same if you're a rock star. like you can still live off the GTA Online money. You do not need to crunch these people. Just take more time. But if you're a double Fine before they were bought by Microsoft. Like you're living and dying by each release. If you don't get something out the door, you're gonna go broke. The money's gonna run out. And that pressure is on these people at all times until they're bought by Microsoft, and then there's like a whole different set of pressures. But yeah, it's it's essential. Double find of Psych Odyssey. There's 32 episodes of it on YouTube, free for everybody to watch. Uh, essential watching if you even like. I I didn't play Psychonauts, so I don't even have like an investment in the behind the scenes of a game. I like. It's just it's a fundamentally important story for video games. I think go watch it. It's it's phenomenal.
0: Well, look, it was linked to the Cast Game of the Year 2021, so I'd say it was all worth it in the end.
2: Suck it, Jack. Suck it! <laughs> <laughs> Do
1: you know what? I'd actually really enjoyed listening to Garrett talk about that so long that I forgot that he did that as a uh, act of violence towards me in the first place. Do you know what? I think I'd watch that, Um just because I think all of the stuff you like elucidated there about game development sounds really interesting to me. So... Even with no, you know, and, and at the end of the day, I, I did say at some point I might play Psychonauts too, but I, I just seeing behind it, like I really love um, Danny O'Dwyer's no-clip documentaries and they only give you kind of a small window, but 32 yeah. episodes, how much content is that in hours, Garrett?
2: Uh, it's about, I think, 22. Most of the episodes are like in and around half an hour. There are a few shorter. There are a good bunch longer, like... It's very good background noise if you're like working during the day and want to throw something on a TV next to you. It's great to watch that way, where it's like, you can be the fly on the wall, just kind of glancing. It's like, oh, things are going disastrously for them. Oh, that meeting which the team lead thought went really well. You could see the look on the faces of his team did not go really well.
0: I see. That's like the thing as well, because there aren't really a lot of these types of... I guess the internal documentaries, if you want to call them, mm-hmm. because there's, you know, Jack mentions like no clip have done a really good job over the last couple of years of, uh, of, of doing these sort of like post-mortem style documentaries with, uh, studios on their games and whatnot. um, but outside of that, like one of the the new things that's coming out with a lot of like smaller developers, and a lot of them are doing it purely just to, to build a, a backing and and visibility for their game. You're seeing a lot of developers do uh, dev blogs or vlogs on YouTube about the game that they're in the process of making. But that's still a very different kind of vibe or environment to to this thing. And you know, it's very rare that you're going to see this sort of thing just because. You know, as kind of you say there, Garrett, like the, the sorts of things that can come out in these types of things and the sensitive nature of topics around stuff like crunch and just the general business dealings. Like it it is very rare that you're ever going to see this sort of thing. So, you know, f- fair play to double fine for putting this out.
2: Yeah. And usually stuff like this is presented as marketing. You know, it, it's like oh, you yeah, get yeah. a
0: little behind the scene glimpse. I look at us placing the
2: assets. Isn't that cool? Whereas this, as I said, it's not quite everything you could possibly want. You will, you will have some questions like, "Oh, how did that really go down?" Uh, as you watch it, but it's like ninety percent of everything you could possibly want to see. Like, what is the actual process behind making a game like this? And you will again, you get a much greater understanding for why both games get ship broken these days, and why games are breaking people and they're super duper burned out because the, the first First episode of it is actually mostly covering the development of Psychonauts 1 because they have a bunch of footage of that, too, because apparently Tim Schafer loves filming his developments. As I said, they did one for Broken Age as well. So you see like that, th- this is the same thing happened on the first Psychonauts where it's like, oh, struggling with publishers, struggling with time, struggling with money. Microsoft bailed them out. Uh, Microsoft dropped the deal. They found a different publisher. All that stuff happened with the first game, too. And like all the developers, a bunch of which are still with Double Fine working on Psychonauts 2, they were all like, never again. We can't let a development like that happen here again. And then it kind of (laughs) did. So like they all went in with the most noble of intentions, like we're going to make a game. We're going to make it the right way. It's going to be great. We're all going to have a good time. We're going to learn from the first time. And they kind of didn't because making games is exceptionally hard.
1: Yeah,
2: (laughs) I'm sure it is. Hmm. it goes by when people are go developers lazy all that stuff it's like it nearly always comes down to time and money because these people have pride in their work i I don't think it's really ever the case that's like oh the artist didn't put more here because they didn't want to you know they're just like ah ship it who cares it's nearly always the case that's like you have x amount of time to turn this out do it and they're like well what can we do and they do what they can
0: all right we're gonna move on to uh Jack you have seen the new Ant-man film which has had shall we say a, a frosty reception um in its reviews this week um is it as bad as people have said and also um how did you go into this film with kind of conscious of that and try to kind of find the good from the film where possible and just, but just you know overall what is your thoughts and feelings on this
1: Yeah, so I I saw the the tomato meter um, the other day at 53%. It may have changed since then. And I decided to not click on a single review, to not look at really anything kind of in-depth, because I just thought, right, I had this week off... the nice little jaunt over to, to Germany during the week. And you know, it's just been nice to like, not think about work for a week. And I thought, right, well, as a as a treat for myself on Friday, I'm gonna go to the first show in event Man at my local Cineplex um and just check it out for myself. Uh rather than kind of reading anything. So now, do I think that it's a bad movie? Yes and no. <laughs> right? I think it's a combination because Genuinely, in here, there is kind of a good movie, I think, if they executed it a bit better. But it's incredibly maddening that they didn't manage to find it with the elements that they have because <laughs> the actual actors in this movie are so so good like you just look at the time on the screen like the people in the in the movie and the time that the majority of them have on the screen which is not a lot by the way like for instance like um evangeline lily realistically has about (laughs) maybe 10 or 11 lines in this movie i think um and most of them are moaning at her mum for not telling her what's going on um Michael Douglas doesn't have a lot to do, even though he does have an exceptionally cool moment. Um, Bill Murray is in the movie for what can only be described as a cup of tea. You've got Bill Murray, okay, right?
0: And and the whole hey that Bill works Murray, really well in Zombie Land, though. All right. Uh
1: yeah, because they did it right, but they they didn't here. Look, so story of the movie is Scott Lang is happy with his life as Avenger. Decides to write book about his life. By the way, I'm not going to go into deep into any spoilers just in case anyone's worried about that. Um, And (laughs) his daughter gets arrested when he's promoting his book. Uh, He goes to bail her out. She gets arrested because she was trying to, with a a group of um, fellow teens, prevent police from exiling homeless people um from a park in san francisco which is a genuine sickening thing that really does happen in san francisco so i'm just like immediately like oh yeah maybe thanks 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 for reminding me that the world is an absolute cesspit of awfulness um you'd think even in the world with avengers that things would kind of be a bit better but anyway um so <laughs> in the process of bailing her out he finds out that she's been arrested before and that she's also been working with uh, basically <laughs> all of the all of the crew um, so Michael Douglas uh, Evangeline Lilly and um, Michelle Pfeiffer the the family, the Antman family um, uh, to, to kind of build this device that can basically send pulses out into the uh, quantum world so they can map out the quantum world, and, and figure out what it looks like, just as a sort of discovery project. Yet, unfortunately, uh, sending pulses out into this place means that somebody responds to those pulses and they all get sucked into the quantum world. And then the movie begins. Right, now, 95% of this movie is in the quantum world. 95% of this movie looks like it was painted onto the side of a van at a music festival. <laughs> Cause it's just like... You know, big wacky, crazy vistas of just CGI nothingness, and yet at the same time, it manages to be really dark, which I, I I didn't really understand. I would get it if you had like different phases of light and stuff, but when we saw the quantum world very briefly in um in the first Ant Man movie, uh, I I kind of get why they didn't spend too much time in it because. You know it looked like really complicated to kind of make this whole believable universe and like the choices they made in the darkness and all that I just assumed was a, you know like a marriage of convenience of like not having to spend too much of this CGI budget on that and then the rest of the movie was like a regular fun Ant-Man movie um but the whole movie being in there just meant like they they committed to like the lightscapes and the look and everything and it was just just not very nice to look at at all really um And, again, I just kept thinking about the characters. Like, I think, you know, like, again, the actors... Like, Paul Rudd is awesome, right? He's one of the most likable people in Hollywood. Genuinely seems like a nice person. Is in lots of funny and entertaining movies. And he's he's a very easy guy to root for. But they just don't really give him a lot of cool stuff to work with in this movie. He spends a lot of time kind of having the movie happen to him rather than being guided by the movie which or like being a guide for the movie which i just didn't really like and again i just it was just a gross misuse of all the all the actors except jonathan majors who as people will be aware and i will give nothing away is playing kang in this movie any second that he is on the screen is very very good um he is That perfect combination of just a little bit psychotic, but also, you know, way smarter than everybody else in the movie. And this is a movie with a lot of extremely smart people in it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's just a very, very strong performance. But one of the problems I have with Kang in this movie is that, you know, (laughs) there's no jeopardy whatsoever, right? So we've already been in- introduced in in the Loki TV show to the concept of, you know, multiverses and different str- threads of the timeline. So you know that even if this Kang were to suffer an awful fate and was actually defeated by the Ant-Man and his crew, that there's still a bunch of other Kang out there. (laughs) And you know this because the next movie they have announced uh, for the Avengers is going to be based around Kang. So you're like, well, there's going to be Kang stuff in the future. So you immediately feel absolutely no jeopardy whatsoever. You know that probably none of the main characters in the movie are going to die because, you know, even if they do, there's all of this quantum (laughs) energy and fucking, you know, timelines and all of that stuff that you can get different versions of them like you know one of the main plot points of the next guardians movie is that it's gamora but it's not al gamora but it's still a gamora, so it's like well Even if one of the characters in this probably dies, it's like, well, do we just get another version of them in the future? Like, will they remain perma-dead? Is that going to happen? Probably not. So just don't feel the weight of any of the jeopardy in the movie. You feel it maybe for some of the sort of, you know, side characters who come into the movie and bits and pieces of people that you meet in the quantum realm. But it just feels like an episode of a TV show almost, which... A kind of two-hour-plus movie really shouldn't feel like that. It should have its own contained stories, its own interesting plot developments and twists. Character development is absolutely just scant in this movie. Like, what as I said, brilliant actors, really interesting characters. You don't really genuinely feel like as there's any development in this, like they do some interesting stuff between, you know, or try to do some interesting stuff between Scott and his daughter. And then they just kind of abandon it for the big fight at the end. And then it's just like, okay, well, blah, 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 you know, without going into any, (laughs) any details about what happens in the movie. And because there's always a big fight at the end, right? So as I'm watching it, all of this stuff is just kind of washing over me and I'm like well right I I kind of I'm interested about what they're going to do with Kang and how they're going to set everything up but as I'm watching the film I don't feel emotionally invested in it because I don't have the character development and I don't feel the weight of the jeopardy now there's some really cool moments in the movie they do some really interesting things you know the concepts are good and like the actual like rigid structure of the film is is pretty decent you know the way they play out the third act and the final climactic battle is pretty cool but it just doesn't pack any of the punch that it should and you don't really feel the weight. Of it at all because you just have this knowledge in your head that it's not really going to go anywhere, <laughs> and that all of the important stuff to, that happens with Kang is going to happen in a future movie, and that all of the stuff that's happening with the with Scott and the the whole Pym family is just going to be probably sorted out and resolved by the end of the movie anyway because they're going to be fine. Like it, and that just kind of strips away any emotional (laughs) development or attachment and by the way i catherine newton um who plays scott's daughter cassie i know she's a good actress i've seen her in other things she is genuinely horrible in this movie i don't know if it's the dialogue i I have to feel that maybe it is a little bit of the dialogue uh, or the way that she was told to play it or maybe that's just a choice that she went for but it's clear that they're trying to get her to kind of be the emotional center of the movie and there's one bit where she has to give again no spoilers but what is considered a rallying speech right um there's a lot of like quantum world you know trouble between different factions without going into too much detail and she has to give like a rallying speech and literally it is so bad. Like the, the dialogue, the delivery, the everything about it is just so flat. And yet, this is the thing that kind of inspires a potential rebellion. And you just you just don't buy into it whatsoever. Um, it's it's re- it's a really hard to watch this movie and feel anything but frustration for what could have been much much better. What you can see in places has potential. What contains all of the elements that could make a a really great movie um like characters you love and actors that are great and it just comes together to just make something that's really bland and sort of devoid of any you know deep emotional attachment and peril and yeah it just ends in a bit of a like walk out of the cinema shrug your shoulders and wait for the avengers kang movie to come out because that will actually finally get some resolution to the whole kang storyline um does the version of kang die in this or not you don't know because i'm not going to tell you but at the end of the day it doesn't really fucking matter does it um so yeah that's ant-man and my word is it just <sighs> disappointing um i don't know what where they go from here with their with their movies They need to make the movies... Well, they need to make the movies about the characters more. They need to have some character development. They need to have some snappy dialogue in them. Because, God... I mean, there's this... I, I forgot to mention the worst bit of the movie, but it's a massive spoiler. But they bring someone back from a previous movie. The CGI used to bring them back is among the most hideous, like, 1991 video game quality bullshit you've ever gonna see and there is a bit of dialogue between Cassie Catherine Newton and this person who is brought back who I won't spoil and it's about 30 seconds and it is the most awkward exchange I've seen in a movie that costs like a couple of hundred million dollars to the point where you're like could they not have made them read these lines again like was no one there on set that day saying actually actually that was shit, can we please do that again, please, <laughs> I want I want a reread of that, uh, no, no, they just left it in the movie, again, sorry Catherine Newton, I know she's a good actress, but fuck me, and like, that is just indicative of what feels like a general lack of quality, of depth because they're going towards something else and it seems like they're looking so far into the future as to what they're trying to set up that they're forgetting that the actual body of these movies matters the stories matter the character development matters i hear people always call out thor the dark world as the worst thor movie right which is fine
0: but in (laughs) In that it's not even the worst thor movie now but you know that's that's no no no
1: no 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 that up, up until that point right but In that movie, there is very, I would say, very interesting development between the relationship of Thor and Loki, which is a key moment of that. You get the moment when Natalie Portman meets, you know, like Thor's mum and dad, and, you know, all of the associated awkwardness with that. And there's actual character development in that movie and interesting things that happen to the people in the movie that you like and understandable and believable things even if the body of the movie and the villain in the movie kind of sucks this movie has a killer villain a, a really great incredibly strong acting performance from a great actor around a shi- uh, around what is really shitty dialogue and really shitty plot development. Which is like fun and so that the funny contrast
2: to like, the rest of the Marvel movies where I think the general consensus was like movie is really good, villain kind of sucked and now it's like no, we got the yeah. villain this time the movie kind of sucks. <laughs> but the, uh, the villain's good but like I said Garrett
1: like we know there's an Avengers Kang movie coming mm-hmm. up so you know that even if this version of Kang dies at the end of this movie or is sucked into some sort of like you know void or is like bashed on the head with a toaster and dies from a brain hemorrhage like none of that stuff matters and, like, that <laughs> would be like, okay. like a
2: cool reveal if like in this movie they killed him it's like yeah fuck it we did it he's dead and then like the end is like no there's more of them but that was the
0: end of loki like you know there's more of them
2: yeah they've already done that, yeah. that was yeah. the end of
0: loki it's but the, the, the problem with marvel at the moment it's it's one part them having to look forward, but it's also one part them having to always look sideways because of the television shows. And I think that while you, you can see the logic and the, the business case for building out the the MCU with the television shows, I think it's also been the thing that's hampered the films more. That and obviously the, the visual effects where they are, which probably the the television shows haven't helped that because they've stretched out um, the, the resources they have. Uh, because I think you can see the clear... Like declining the quality of the films, both visually and just you know in in their general pacing and whatnot, because of those two factors of having to look sideways and having to look forward, and you know this is I uh, this is the least invested I have been in the MCU to this point because partially uh, the, the the quality of the stuff hasn't been that great, but also just it's a, it's an over saturation um, of 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 MCU till this point.
1: You're also starting to really feel the fact that they are homogenized and that you do have directors and writers who have to stick within certain boundaries therefore there's not much creative choice and not much risk taking like one of the things that i really loved about the doctor strange movie which again was uneven but much like leagues and leagues better than this were some of the weird creepy Sam Raimi choices in the movie it, that that feels like a Sam Raimi film yes yeah. right and that meant, meant that meant it felt different from the rest of the MCU movies it made it feel original and it made it stand out There's nothing about this that makes it stand out, which sucks because there's so many elements in this movie that could have been really good. And there were things in the movie that were actually good. They were just linked together by shit. And that sucks. And you know what? It really hurts to say this because I was a massive, massive MCU fan. And even I am calling on it now. Like I think Garrett, you tweeted something the other day about reading all of the, the reviews to this movie and stuff. And And I always replied and just said, mate, even I am starting to not feel hyped about this. And if they've kind of lost me, then they must be on the point of losing the real kind of super mega fans as well. You're always going to have the people that just kind of will argue to the death that something's good, regardless of, you know, quality or not, just because they love something and they buy into it so much. Right. But me, I'm really starting to see the cracks, feel the cracks and just, just feel incredibly disappointed because this was like a can't-miss franchise. And within the space of like three years, it's gone from a can't-miss franchise into a very occasionally they'll get me excited or invested. But then that's probably because I'm seeing something from a character that they've set up better in a previous movie or they're bringing back somebody from a previous movie to get the cheap pop, you know, wrestling style. That sucks. I don't want to feel like that about the MCU. That this was my ref this is like my refuge. Like my blockbuster refuge. I knew there was like two or three MCU movies coming out a year. They're always gonna be a blast. I either go and see them by myself or with a pal or something and get really excited for them. And today I didn't have as much excitement until maybe like five ten minutes before and I was like come on right Ant-Man the first two Ant-Man movies were both pretty good I really like all the people involved in this. Surely it's going to be good. Jonathan Majors is going to be good because he was sort of like real creepy, but like, you know, smarter, holier-than-thou presence in, in Loki. And all of that stuff is in there. It's just in there in, in a shell, in a corporately squeezed movie, in something that looks like a fucking p- failed Pink Floyd album cover. And, ah. Oh. Is it ever disappointing, lads? It really is disappointing. I mean, even with the 53% that I saw before, which, I don't know, may have gone up or down by now, like even after that. And everything that I mentioned, there's two post-credits movie, obviously not going to spoil that, two post-credit scenes at the end of the movie. But even they basically render what you've seen in the movie largely pointless as well and you're like w- normally these mo- these scenes at the end of these movies are meant to make you excited but they're not telling you anything that you didn't already know they're setting up things you already knew were coming and they make the movie <laughs> the ending of the movie feel kind of useless anyway. you know what's interesting
0: so- as well because Ant-Man and the Wasp sort of suffered a little bit from this because it came right before um, Endgame but like the way they, not got around it, but what works about Ant-Man and the Wasp. Not to say that it's, like, a great film by any means. And I think, Garrett, you were speaking about this, or I remember we we kind of mentioned this on Twitter, that, like, part of what makes that work, uh, and, and you know, the, the original Ant-Man as well, is that the, it, the stakes are low, and it's a re- refreshing change of pace. And... Because we've got to this point of that power creep where, really, after Endgame, what can you do? You know, you've had half the fucking universe annihilated and then brought back in the blink of an eye. What more can you do past that? And obviously the answer is, like, the multiverse. But you get to a point where the stakes are so high. And it's part of why, like, the first half of of WandaVision was incredibly refreshing. Because the stakes felt a lot lower. And then obviously, you know, they escal- escalated towards the end. Um, and even uh, for, for the problems that, say, like The Falcon and the Winter Soldier had, it still felt low stakes. And it's why probably Hawkeye is the one that's kind of stayed with me the most because it just feels like a kind of like Christmas camper sort of film. And and I really like the uh, the uh, kind of chemistry between Florence Pugh and, and Hayley Steinfeld. So it, it just... It feels like Ant-Man doesn't feel like the, the, the subject material to escalate the, uh, the kind of tension to the degree that it does, certainly off of what's, you know, going to come next. And yeah, like that, that brief clip that I saw on Twitter doing the rounds, I went back and I watched like five minutes of the original Iron Man, and it really is just like these are two entirely different franchises at this point in terms of like, you know, what they're going for visually. Um and I'm almost curious, like, what kind of like alter director that could they bring in to see what they they would look like or feel like in a kind of neutered down MCU version. And I'm trying to think, like, what a a Wes Anderson Marvel film would look well, like. Well, the funny thing is, and, who
2: was originally tied Ant Man? It was like. That- it was right. It was that uh, right. Uh, like, the, they're like, yeah. "Let's bring in an author director. who will bring his own voice and vision, and they boot him to the curve because he did that too much." <laughs> and like, it's naive to think like these were never producer-driven movies. They were always producer-driven movies, more than director or writer-driven movies. But it does feel like since Endgame, like the ratio of which the films have been producer versus director-driven <laughs> has just skewed more and more toward producer-driven. Where it's just over and over again, you get films that feel like they're serving some kind of corporate need or some kind of future setup. And like the thing you're watching in front of your face that you paid, whatever, 12, 13, 14 bucks, however much a cinema ticket is these days. Uh, if I'm an old man. How much do I pay for my cinema tickets? Uh, but, but however much that is. Th- like, this thing you're watching is pointless. Who cares? Like, what's the point of sitting there? And yeah, like post-end game, I did say that on Twitter, where post-end game, where as you said, the stakes were half the universe is gone <laughs> you can't go much further than that so for a while they should have like really reined it back in and done some like personal straightforward tales that they're just
0: I mean they sort of did a little bit like the Black Widow was was a, a but even know, then
2: like the end of that movie is thing. a typical oh there's sleeper cell agents that are going to destroy the world and like the, the same with, <laughs> with, 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 with Shang-Chi where it's like the, fir- the first half of that movie is really cool and then the last half is like evil dragon thing is going to burst out out of that door and destroy the world. It's like oh, stop it. Just do like a kingpin where he just want to, wants to take over a city and some dude stops him. <laughs> Can we not do that for a while? Do we have to do end of the world stakes? Can we just do like? The boots on the ground straightforward easy stories to tell instead of all these say- and as said, like the, the bigger problem is like they're, they're they're veering further and further from like like how grounded the first few phases of the mcu was like it was all earth-based and now they're they're pushing further and further space-based and multiverse and quantum realm based which requires infinitely more cgi work At a time when their quality of their CGI is deteriorating at a rate that is almost unbelievable. And it goes back to the thing we were talking about, Psychonauts, where it's like, it is not the case that artists are not good enough to make these films look good. That's not the case. There's tons of artists in the world who could make this film look phenomenal. It is the time and money they are given to, to make these films look good, that result in why they look terrible. And that's the case. Like, all of these movies look bad now. And they didn't. You, you It looks like Van Art, Garrett. Van yeah, Art. You go back and you watch Iron Man, it's like <laughs> some of, like, the 2008, 2009, whatever that film released, CGI, a little small bit rickety, but, like... The films now are more rickety than Iron Man was. It's crazy that, like, it's because they're producing so much and apparently, like, the vision of what they want changes a ton during during production so that it turns out a lot of the CGI is done, like, in four months instead of two years in which it should be. God. It's, my it's God. all that stuff. There's some nightmare stories about how the CGI in this film is in these films and shows are done and why it turns out as bad as it turns out. And as I said, it's never the artist's fault. It's,
1: it's a can, never... Can confirm first-hand account from a person who is my friend who shall not be named who has worked with one of these companies that is exactly how it is and if he's listening right now i'd imagine he would be nodding broadly at all of the things that you just
2: said and by the way it's not as bad as what you've just said it's Mm. worse
0: (laughs) and it it shows
2: like that's the thing it's not the case that like they pull it together in the end and you know they're they're getting they're not getting away with it it looks terrible no no vanor this movie looks like Vano. I don't know. like i'll be seeing this tomorrow and maybe i'll come back next week and be like wait a minute well you were so wrong about that man i had the best time of my life i doubt it but uh, as I said even by your level of and
0: takes garrett i'm i, <laughs> I, I would be I, I, pleasantly surprised everybody else
2: turns that it is the moment i'll be like you know guys it's actually pretty good
0: i think um well
1: garrett was trying to defend var officials when we started this call <laughs> it, there, there is a Before unhealthy media the culture around var it's just what i'm saying but like i think the only thing that you might defend is you maybe you might defend Catherine newton as cassie yeah. and you might say look it is the dialogue that she's given and probably the instructions that make her performance so awful but when you are meant to be one of the emotional centerpieces of the of the movie and you are that bad it deserves calling out unfortunately um i kind of do feel for her though because she wasn't given a lot to do but yeah look the only thing the only thing I care about Garrett after you've seen this movie uh, is that you
2: confirm that Jonathan Majors is in fact the well he was phenomenal uh, in Loki so I I have very little doubt that he's also not phenomenal here he brings
1: it here too yeah he brings it here too and (laughs) not that it's a spoiler you can imagine that there is some conflict between him and some of the people in the movie because how would there not be and some of the choices they make in that I'm just like, oh, really? Mm. Um, but any time he opens his mouth and is just given dialogue, like I could just watch, if it was just like an hour of, of, of him explaining why he's doing what he's doing and setting the whole Which thing up. Which is basically what the end just, of Loki
2: is. <laughs> That's the last episode yeah, of Loki. Yeah, but if he,
1: if, if he carried on doing that, it would be awesome. Which is him
2: and Tom Hiddleston sitting um, at a desk just chatting for like a half hour, and it's actually awesome.
0: It is with his no, album. Those, those two would make that work. That would be tremendous. That's because they're both very they're like good. Like Paul Rudd yeah. could it, make this, that work,
1: but apparently they didn't. He could. So yeah. could Michael Douglas. So could Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer is very good in this movie, but she did just. They're, she could have done so much more. <laughs> we see cool flashbacks that explain her quantum past, but they could have done way more with that. Like way more interesting things than they did they didn't do this they didn't execute this all of the good things in it feel less good because the rest of it was so badly done I'm just alright I'm sad
0: before Jack has a complete breakdown on our I'm I'm sad I'm going to drag us on to, I I mentioned, I think last week, I mentioned in passing that uh, myself and Maria over the Christmas break watched a film called Metropolis, uh, which for anyone that doesn't know is a a very famous film from the 1920s that is uh, kind of regarded as like one of the pioneering sci-fi movies, uh, one of the kind of the earliest versions of a sci-fi movie um, that has kind of... uh, continue to be one of the most sort of like influential um, and, and referred back to films of that type and uh, I'd seen kind of clips of it over the years and like montages of different bits and pieces and refer to uh, but never actually kind of sat down to, to watch it and when I was watching the david bowie uh, biopic last year uh, there would be clips of of metropolis in it and so myself and maria was like you know let's just watch this fucking thing at some point and be done with it so we sat down and we watched over two setting uh, two sittings uh, over the christmas period um first of all we talk about films these days being uh, overly long this thing is three hours long <laughs> like even in 1927 we couldn't escape the three hour film so uh yeah there there is that um the th- the reason I wanted to bring it up, because I, I mentioned it in passing last week, and then I was going to be done with it and-, and not talk about it again. But the thing that is so fascinating about it, and the reason I wanted to bring it back up, is because of, you know, um, seeing that clip from Ant-Man the other day on Twitter, and just seeing how god-awful the, the CGI and the VFX uh, are in that film. You watch something like Metropolis, a film that is... Uh, like nearly a hundred years old and you see the tricks that are used to pull off certain effects of this city in first of all do i of you two know metropolis that have ever seen metropolis do you know know anything about it
2: superman
1: lives know about it never seen it okay so i know it is iron film von fritz lang (laughs) uh, that's (laughs) the one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes but i have never, no, i've never seen it i i know the poster with the weird looking Cyberman thing um but yeah that's that's about yeah. as far as i can get with it
0: so it's a it's a film that uh depicts you know what what i guess people in the 1920s would think that the the cities of the future would look like you've got roads high in the sky uh you know bright city lights um I think that this flying vehicles in in the film as well, but very much kind of depicting what a future film would look like from uh, an an earlier time. And one of the kind of key central film uh, kind of plots of the film, actually, like it's very, it's a very, uh, like class warfare slash uh, capitalism is bad. It's very on the nose with these sorts of things. But again, you know, this film's nearly 100 years old. So whatever. We're also making films about that Uh, now, by the way. But I was going to say, it's very kind of poignant um, because we are still doing this thing now. But the way that you see how this film is put together... um, what's kind of the most interesting thing is how many tricks that have obviously been brought over from theater and stage production to make this thing work. And also it's very jarring to watch performances from this time because it is a silent film, but you're watching these performances that are so, they almost look over the top and comical in their body language and their facial expressions. But when you take a step back and think about it, it's like, well, these are all obviously like, theater performers and stage performers. And one of the things about theater production is that your animations and your characters, your uh, characteristics, it, it is all bigger and over the top because you need to perform to the person at the back of the room. So for the first kind of five, 10 minutes of the film, you, you feel like you're watching a cartoon because of how wacker they are, but it's like, well, it, it kind of comes with the time because these aren't people that were in films. They were in theater production, but you see all these little tricks of the trade to make this film look the way it does where for example there's a bit where you have um all of these uh kind of lower class workers get into a lift to be taken um down to like the bowels of, of the city where they work and you can if you look you can see that what's happening is instead of the lift is going down the camera is kept still and what's happening is like the side panels are going up like someone's obviously you know holding a rope and and pulling the the side panels up to give the impression that the lift is going down. And you don't have to look too hard to see that, but you can kind of like switch your brain off and just appreciate appreciate it for what it is. And there is something to be said for allowing your imagination to do the work for those sorts of things is far more rewarding than the you know, onslaught of what kind of modern CGI looks like. I feel like this is far more satisfying to see that sort of thing or see the use of miniatures to mimic a giant sprawling metropolis with these tiny little lights that are clearly meant to indicate cars in, you know, a giant traffic jam. And while it's certainly a film that has obviously aged in many, many ways, and while the, the way that the, the topics and themes in the film are very very on the nose and a bit goofy at points i think it's it's an incredible film and an incredible inco- accomplishment for what was achieved uh you know back in 1927 and i think okay, that- i was gonna
1: say in 1927 mark is there such a thing as on the nose <laughs> well, <laughs> because no one had probably seen anything like that depicted in film before right? yeah, yeah no right there, film, right obviously there.
0: yeah well, look, I mean, the the fucking the Nazis uh, didn't like it too much and tried to get all the copies of it destroyed, so there is that. Uh, the, there is about 12 different cuts of this film, so the one that we watched, uh, I think the most recent one that is available, um, there are uh, a number of times in the film where basically there's a black screen and it like literally tells you this is what was happening in this scene because as far as I'm aware, there isn't like a... A fully restored version of this film that is available because of, you know, the Nazis. Uh, But if you are someone that is, uh, you know, as a fully restored version, please. (laughs) Well, there is that. But if you are interested in, in, in like, the history of cinema, the the kind of early history of cinema, I think that it's a really fascinating film to watch. Maybe not so much in terms of just, like, as as, as a film and as a story, but certainly just from, like, the production side of it and the visual side of it, I think it's... uh, You know, there's there's a couple of bits where they have... um, uh, like these giant kind of machinery sets, these these, you know, basically giant bits of machinery that people are working on, and the way that they set those up and the kind of scaling of the people compared to the sets, like there's a really, I imagine, just very clever like sleight of hand, camera trickery sorts of techniques to make this stuff work, but it still looks incredibly impressive, almost a hundred years later. So. Yeah, uh, Metropolis is uh, its a really interesting film and uh, actually was entered into the public domain uh, at the start of this year. Steal so, it all you want. Yeah. Uh yeah steal it all the fucking way like we were
2: talking about the Fablemans last weekend the week before there's, there's some lovely little stuff like that in the Fablemans where like the young Steven Spielberg fake Steven Spielberg Sammy is shooting his, his uh, like homemade movies and uh, his dad's like oh how did you get the realistic looking gun flash it's like oh I stabbed a hole in the film <laughs> so then you got the flash <laughs> and, and like, you see him they're doing a war movie and they're running over like a field uh, of mines and they set one off and the way he does that is he puts a little plank in the, in, in the ground digs a hole puts some, some dirt on it so you just see the dirt fly up in the air when they step on the plank and it's like how have we strayed so far from like the small things you know that now we're just like how about we have a bunch of people crunch in three months to make something that looks like garbage that's where we are now
0: i I remember i remember i was watching there's a there's a really good youtube series uh or channel called corridor crew uh that is literally like what they do is is um film sfx and, and vfx and cgi and they were talking about the um Uh, first Star not the first Star Wars, well, Star Wars Episode 1 from 1999. And there's a bit where you can see, uh, like, there's like an aerial shot of a city and there are these waterfalls that come crashing down. And it's literally, it's just a composite shot of like someone pouring salt that looks like when you kind of put the film all together, it looks like a waterfall crashing down. It's literally just someone pouring salt off like the edge of a table. And it's just, I it's, said, yes, that's the kind of shit I want to see in films. That's so much more interesting and uses practical effects and, and looks better. You know, it's it's, it's it like, looks better. Yeah, exactly. It's like I, I will always take you know, as 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 much as I hated uh, so much of like the last Nolan film, at least from like a visual aspect, it's so much more interesting because he is obviously mm. someone that is. Uh, I'm so much more into to practical effects. And yeah, I I will always take a film of practical effects, um, even though probably a lot of the time that's more dangerous and expensive and whatnot else. But it just looks better and it ages up better. And yeah, yeah. Uh, less CGI, please. Please? Please? I very
1: much hope he didn't blow anything up when he makes Oppenheimer. <laughs> like, I hope there's some <laughs> massive craters in, in various parts of the world. I fucking so to be Practical
2: effects. I was like, can we, can we set off an atomic bomb?
1: Can we? Can we? not just one i need to get it from a few (laughs) angles so uh i'm gonna need to blow up parts large parts of a few countries if that's okay with you guys
0: all right finally on this uh, sometimes gaming podcast let's get to the video games and uh talked about psychonauts for ages Jack, I'm looking at you, and I'm not seeing anything on the on the lodger this week. Have you got anything oh, for us?
1: There's nothing new. I've just been playing Hitman's Stupid Freelancer, <laughs> and I love it so much. <laughs> I can't help it; it's really fun. I like Hitman. Sue me.
0: I I also uh I streamed some Hitman Freelancer on Monday for the first time, and I don't have much to say about the Freelancer mode, other than the fact that. If you go into that mode and don't know the levels, you, you're in for a bad time, as I found out firsthand. As I, uh, as as I struggled through most of the second level and and got wrecked on the on the third level, uh, trying to take down the syndicate leader, um, it, it definitely is asking you to be familiar with those levels. And even though, I, if I recall, you were saying Jack that the the weapon placement and whatnot is different in those levels, it's still it good. To, at least know how the you know like i i feel way more confident about doing a freelancer uh uh, attempt on paris now than i would have been like two weeks ago even though i've played paris a bunch before i'm for the first time ever um i over the last couple of days i got to level mastery 20 on paris which i've never done on any hitman level before now and i feel way more confident about doing a, a freelancer run on that because i know basically how that building is structured and you know where the pipes are where i can make a quick getaway where i get to where uh i i I just would have had no fucking chance on like the india level or the uh uh, thailand level
1: yeah um but i think the thing is you don't necessarily need to know the maps you really just need to know how the systems work with the guards and what you can and can't do and what what is good practice in a hitman level and what is bad practice in a hitman level in my opinion I think yes it really does help if you know little tricks and gimmicks of the maps so like when you were playing me the other night I was trying to kind of nudge you in certain directions and say do this do that because that that little bit does help But I just think you need to understand how the game works, the engine works and stuff. So the smart thing to do is go back to Paris because Paris is the most perfect introduction to all of the things in that game. Okay, I need this disguise so I can get here and that disguise does that and I can't do that. And if I do, what's the difference between, you know, a hostile area and a sort of suspicious area and all of that kind of good stuff? So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's doable. I think without it but it does help if you know what you're doing
0: yeah i'm I'm pretty gonna do um level mastery on like a couple of more levels i'm I'm not gonna do it all in one sitting I feel like the way that hitman works for me and kind of was obviously like the release schedule in terms of his design is I'm probably gonna do maybe like one level every couple of weeks or so and just spend a day or two and do like mastery on them and then once I've done a few of those I might jump back back into to freelancer and uh and then give that another go but Um, My my first attempt was not great, but that, that was purely on me, that was not on the game itself. Is there anything since you spoke about it last week, anything you feel that you've come across that wasn't there before, or is it just all freelancer all the time, all good?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I found out that you can, the only thing I didn't really know was that you can eliminate suspects with the camera, like, you can click a prompt off if they don't match something, so you, they don't show up on the map anymore, so that was like, yeah, because I knew you were saying, what's the point of using the camera? I mean, obviously, you can't zoom if you look, in so that the camera would make sense, even if you couldn't eliminate suspects, so you can get a closer look without being near them, but you can actually eliminate suspects with the camera on Freelancer, so that is one thing that I discovered that there's a prompt and a way of doing that that i i hadn't been using up until that point and that has made things easier on those sort of showdown levels so yeah uh other than that no i'm just having a good time with it and there's a <laughs> there's a youtuber who's reached mastery level f- um 100 on there and to do that you need to get 4 million xp so uh yeah i don't think that'll be me because that's insane but uh there is an awful lot of road to roll in this game if you wanted to carry on going. So, yeah.
0: Garrett, you've got a couple of demos um, here, and I want to get to them because you've also got uh, theatre rhythm, theatre rhythm, how, how are we pronounce this? I think this?
2: they veer between theatrhythm or theatre rhythm. I prefer theatre rhythm or theatrhythm.
0: Yeah, yeah. But before before we get to those, you've got two demos. You've got Octopath Traveler and Sea of Stars, which I mentioned last week. Uh, how are these two demos working yeah, for so you? Yeah, so we
2: were talking about these last week because they were they were released during the Nintendo Direct last week. I feel more strongly about one than the other, so we'll start with one I like. Uh, Octopath Traveler Two. It's more Octopath Traveler, and that first game is real good, and this and second game is real good. I I, I don't based on like the, this demo is. They say play the first three hours of the game and then stop, and you can transfer your save progress love that kind of demo by the way, tremendous because 3 hours is a good chunk a good way to get like a decent feel for the game and also you keep your progress so you don't have to play twice uh, Square do good demos play to Square. Square are such a weird company and like there's like a right down <laughs> yep. the middle of like half of the stuff they do I love and half of the stuff they do is infuriating <laughs> uh, I mean like uh, uh, do you think you can summon the energy
1: to play Forspoken at some someday point? Someday when it costs me nothing, <laughs> hopefully yeah is literally how I feel. I'm like, I am not paying a single penny for this because
2: it looks just. Well, ass.
0: Th- does it even feel like a Square Enix project? Well, it's
2: made by like the some of the Final Fantasy 15 team. That's what's the weird. It's not like a you know Western game they didn't really care about, but they put out and sent out the die. This is like what Some of their core staff made this game. It's so weird. But yeah, Octopath Traveler 2 looks phenomenal still. Great HD 2D. Sounds amazing. Soundtrack is top notch. Great stuff. Based on the, the first couple hours, I don't think they've solved the problem where that you're, you, where your part, uh, party don't seem to interact in meaningful ways. Because like the hook is, you, you pick one character to start with of the eight, you do their first chapter, then you travel the world, recruit the other characters, you do the next chapter of their story. I think all the stories have uh, three chapters each, or at least if it's based on the first one, I think it was three chapters each. So you, you travel the world, you find out these people's stories, and they tell nice little stories. For all of all the characters but the, the first game they didn't come together it didn't feel like you were a party traveling it just felt like a bunch of strangers going around doing each other's stories and like when I when I finished the first chapter of the character I chose first and I went to the the, the second character they didn't even interact it's like we're going to throw you straight into the, the first chapter of that person's story now and like all those are good can you pick
0: can you can you pick between the characters or yeah? like is it in is it in linear order or is the demo kind of like forcing you in a particular nope, order no you can
2: pick any one you want Oh, any of the the, the first eight, okay, you can so choose. Well, the only eight. There's eight characters in the game. You can choose any of the eight characters to start with.
0: So not to, like, jump to, to, to a comparison too strongly, but there seems like there's a, a Live Alive element to this. Well,
2: Live is a little different in that you pick a character and then you play their story start to finish. Whereas here you pick a character, you play a part of their story and then you start exploring the world and you either go to the next part of their story or you can go to the first part of another character's story and then you put together an RPG party and there's pretty standard RPG mechanics there where you choose right. a party of four from a choice of the eight you have in the game and then you use those people. I,
0: I, think, the, I, I think the comparison I made... Why am I the comparison? I I saw a tweet today, I can't remember who it was, but they were saying that one of the the issues they had with the original Octopath is that the eight stories, like the kind of flow of them and the pacing, the mechanics were the same across the eight. It was just the the story different in certain ways where uh, they said that it felt like whatever they did with this, there seemed to be kind of differences and and they solved that part of it. So I'm wondering if there is a a a live-alive element in terms of the uh stories themselves the 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 mechanics of what you do within those levels are i don't know if they'll be to the same kind of degrees of like you know the the distant future in live alive being a kind of non-combat uh system approach compared to like the the wild west and what that does if it does do that i think that's really cool um I don't know if I will play it, but I, I would be more tempted to knowing that it would uh, vary up the, the, the mechanics and the flow of that sort Yeah, I think sort of that
2: thing. was a Jason Schreier tweet, right?
0: may have been yeah actually yeah i think he said right. he
2: played 15 hours rather than the the demos available three so he has a better feel of it than i so ah, of course if he says so sure. I, t- I take his word for it that it's better the The best part of this game is the combat's great though it's so fast and you can double speed it which every jrpg should allow you do talk about that and see if stars in the moment Or <laughs> it's just like you choose your options because the, the entire battle system is built around like breaking the uh, the enemy so the enemy will have a total number of like shield points and you can break it using a certain weapon or magic. So it's like that you can break them by hitting with a bow twice and then you'll do a lot more damage. And you have the ability to save up like battle points so that you can either power up your attacks to the times of four. Each time you do a turn, you get an extra battle point so you can save them up and use them. And so you, you spend the entire battle like breaking enemies and then using all of your super powerful attacks to kill them. And it's very quick. It's very satisfying. It looks great yeah i i enjoyed octopath it's 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 more of the same like there's there's a couple of new things it's like now you can travel on rivers on a boat which is the same really as traveling on feet when you think about it but it looks cool so (laughs) but that's that's a new thing and there's a couple like your characters have like super moves they can do now that you can uh build up a meter for so there's some small changes but for the most part it does seem like we made another octopath traveler game and the first one was pretty cool and i think this one's going to be pretty cool too and then there's Sea of Stars, which I don't dislike, but it's it's going more for like the GBA era of RPGs or there's like when you think of like Mario and Luigi, maybe, where there's a, a heavier focus on puzzles in in your RPGs, which I'm not sure how I feel about. So like this demo is a little different. It's more like the vertical slice style demo where they start you in an area and you play through a little dungeon and then you solve a bunch of puzzles and the demo is over. And like, it looks great. I think it looks absolutely fantastic. And it, again, it sounds very good. There's a little, because uh, as I mentioned last week, Yasunura Matsuda did a few of the tracks in the game as a guest composer. And there's a little area that's not available in the demo, but on the world map, you can go to a little corner. It's like, you can't go to this area, but Yasunori Matsuda did the music for it so we're going to play it for you. It's a nice little treat because you walked over here. <laughs> I thought that was very nice. But the the thing that like it's slower, which coming straight from Octopath Traveler, which is really really fast, to this, it felt very slow which not ideal, and then the puzzle stuff might be a little off-putting for me. Some people might like it more. It's like, ooh, a little bit of variety. You walk around, you solve some puzzles. But it's like the usual, like putting crystals in a certain order, or moving blocks, and it's just... If this is what the whole game is, I'm not sure I'm on board, even though it looks and sounds great. Uh, like the the battle system is kind of Chrono Trigger style, I guess, where you're doing you're kind of building up to doing combo moves. I think is what they kind of want you to build it around. They don't really put tutorials in the demo, so you can kind of have to work it out. Or maybe they didn't. I skipped them. But yeah, I, I'm a little a <laughs> little softer on Sea of Stars again. Uh, i putting it in the direct point of contrast with Octopath Traveler, which is a game like. It's the reason I love the fact that the Switch exists because I don't think Square Enix would be making these mid-range titles without the Switch. Like Octopath Traveler is on PS4, PS5 as well. But like they're targeting the Switch with games like this. And I don't think they would be if the Switch didn't exist because they have to make kind of smaller experiences that can run on Switch. So they like target those smaller, cool, throwback RPGs that can run on Switch. And if they were just making games for super powerful consoles, I'm not sure they'd do that. So it's one of the big reasons I love that the, the fact that Nintendo's hardware is a little bit underpowered because you get cooler, small experiences. But to go from Octopath Traveler, which is like super polished, super fast, and like it's not like Sea of Stars is broken or anything. It's just, it just doesn't feel as good as Octopath Traveler does. So I think it's an unfortunate point of comparison to put them directly side by side, but I've already paid for it. As mentioned, I kickstarted it, so I will likely play it later in the year. And I think August when it comes out Uh, and then the other thing theater them, it's a Final Fantasy music game. It could be terrible. It really could. It could be absolutely awful but it has like 300 Final Fantasy songs in it. and It would just tickle the part of my brain that loves the 300 Final Fantasy songs as I push a bunch of buttons in rhythm with it. And I, I don't think I'm like a whale for many games... A whale of people I don't know is um, Brendan Fraser in a movie, but also is is, um, (laughs) a person who is willing to give a great deal of money to some kind of live service game. There is not very many games I'm like a true whale for. This has been one of them because they've made three of these two on 3DS. And now this is the third. They've also made one for Kingdom Hearts as well. A very similar style game. I also bought I bought all those games. I do not want to think about the amount of money I spent on the DLC in these games because at least this one has a season pass which the, the there's two versions of it there's two higher tiers of this game I bought the most expensive one it's like 110 bucks don't judge me but the 3DS version you had to buy the songs individually and I probably spent 100 bucks on those songs <laughs> So these, this is like the series I have given the most money in like the the percentage of top spenders on series of video games. I'm probably in like the top 5% in the theater series. It is a, a, a series that can just leech money out of me because it's like, look at the look at the Final Fantasy music and I can hit some buttons and they run along a field that has some like the visual throwbacks to the games. And that makes me feel good inside. And that's all I really need from video games. And this is good. It's also out. You can go play it on Switch and PS4. I assume means probably PS5. I don't know how that works. Yeah, it's. It, how many Final Fantasy 8 songs? I are think
1: seventeen. Oh man! Does each song cost money then? Like how much? How much are we? No, I,
2: I, so there's the the base game, which is a, a full sixty buck game that comes with like three hundred songs by itself. I think the seventeen songs I mentioned are actually base game songs, and then the DLC is separate. So. Like, there's uh, at least 10 to... 18 songs per final fantasy game including some of like the deep cuts like there's final fantasy 7 uh, remake music there's advent children music there's final fantasy 13 2 music like it, it's the full ex- expanded universe of final fantasy. like just talk about mystery dungeon music in this game and all of that like base game free wow. and then there's like another 50 songs for the higher version and another like 50 again for the even higher and and the the super deluxe version has a bunch of music from like nier and Chrono Trigger and Live Alive and all the kind of expanded Square Enix universe, just not the Final Fantasy universe. And I'll buy it all, Jack. I'll buy every single bit of it.
0: <laughs> is, is every track there available from the get-go or do you have to unlock them through Unfortunately, play?
2: Unfortunately, you have to unlock them through play, which I don't like, but I, I do guess. But also, like, I'll play these songs anyway. You don't need to make me unlock them. Because the, the way the game starts is they, they give you, I think, five that are automatically unlocked, five series. So I think it's Final Fantasy 7, 13, 15, 14, and five, I want to say, are the five that are unlocked to start. You play through like four songs, in it, and they give you a key, and you can unlock one of the other games. So you have to play like four or five songs per series to unlock something. And then you can, at least you can choose which one you want to unlock. So they give you like a, a little currency thing, and like, which game you want to unlock? It's like, I want to unlock Final Fantasy VIII, please. And then you can unlock Final Fantasy VIII. And yeah, I would prefer if they just gave me all the songs. But listen, I'll play them all anyway. So I guess it's it's much ado about nothing.
0: Uh, as someone who has a, an appreciation for certain parts of the, the Final Fantasy soundtracks over the years, but mm. uh, wouldn't be <laughs> as... P- Sick as you two. Do you think there's enough here for me, purely on like a gameplay like uh, aspect, mechanically? Do you think there's enough here for me to to want to spend any time with this? Like there
2: are systems. Like aside from like the, the general you know, music game of it all, like the, the, the way the game is framed is that you pick a party of four and you're you're battling a bunch of monsters and you can equip that party of four with new abilities and items and stuff like that, and like an airship drops you off and you can choose the skin of the airship, so you can be like I want the lunar whale from Final Fantasy Four, please, because I'm a whale as mentioned. So <sighs> you can pick the lunar whale cool. to drop you off, or all the, the Ragnarok from Final Fantasy 8 can drop you off. There's like like there's nice little touches oh, cool. like that, but they're all like like fan service touches like if you don't care about final fantasy music either you have to go into this game with a willingness to gain an appreciation for final fantasy music or you won't care about this game
0: like i know i, I like final fantasy music i just you know i'm not as familiar with the the entire back catalog um other than shuffle and boogie which is terrible but other than that like you know right. I'm, I'm there i'm willing to to appreciate um stuff that i don't know I, um, I would be interested,
2: like, if you have no experience with this music, if you if you didn't hear shuffle and boogie and you're like do 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 do, and you're very pleased with yourself when you hit the notes and rhythm, uh, which they they don't do the thing where it like drops out if you don't, but there there's a like satisfying ding you get every time you do. It's like Power Watch Simulator, really. Yeah.
0: But you, you said this is sixty quid, right?
2: I think it's sixty. It Might be fifty. That.
0: that I mean, even fifty seems quite. Steep. I don't
2: know. It's it's a full triple A release.
0: Garrett, you, you don't get you don't get i I'm well, the, on this, the you... whale.
2: I have I've already admitted this mark. I've already i I've already I've admitted my problem. But I don't know, I think it's a fully featured full game. And I, I don't have a problem with them charging 60 bucks for this. Like it's it's a full game. It's a full real game they put out.
0: Okay. Alright. I'll I'll take your word on mm. this. We'll um, great songs.
2: Final Fantasy VIII, great because <laughs> like when you play, because the way that you unlock them is like there's a little st- series mode you go into, and then you play through all the songs from Final Fantasy VIII. And eight is like it might have been the one that I'm like, there's the least songs that I'm not interested in here because all of the games have like, like songs I love, and then there, there's a few like oh there's a bunch of boring songs in there. Whereas eight is like, god, every song in the soundtrack absolutely fucking rocks. <laughs>
0: Mm-hmm. do you know what I'd, I'd appreciate with uh with this is if they included like with the the kind of modern uh JLPG thing where you could speed up the battles it'd be nice if you could speed up the songs as well and do everything in double time or triple well, you, time you can just to, you know add that like extra level you of challenge. can't
2: speed up the songs but there is like as you play through them some of the levels have like little hooks where it's like oh they go at double speed the notes move by at double speed so you have to do the the, the inputs twice as fast so there's like some small hooks on, okay. on levels like that and obviously if you play on the hardest difficulty it's insane and impossible
0: yeah, I, I was going to say like I'm I'm presuming it must have like difficulty settings to uh mix up the challenge. Yeah, I think and every
2: level has 3 where it's like yeah, you know, easy, normal, hard, and then some levels have like super hard for like some of the the big songs. Okay. And it's it's one of those games where it's weirdly I think easy is probably a little harder or at least less satisfying than normal is. I, I think that's the case for a lot of rhythm games because obviously the way they make it easier is there's less notes. And when there's less notes, y- yeah. you don't get the same like satisfaction of like play, you play feeling no. like you play no, no, the no. song.
0: I, I hate playing Guitar Hero on on easy mode. It's the worst. Yeah, so you I do have it. to. I'd recommend playing on like
2: I think it's expert. They call the middle difficulty, but whatever the middle difficulty is, you should play it on that. I think you'll you'll feel like you're playing the song better.
0: Does it Does it feel like a sequel to the 3DS game, or does it just feel like that move to this? Not not necessarily like a port, but it's just port. It's, more it's, 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 of that. It's, it's kind of yeah? an advanced okay. port,
2: but If you'd played the 3DS game and you're like, I got my fill, this is the same thing. There's more songs. That's the only difference, really. They've tweaked some of the mechanics and some of the modes and all that. As I said, they put some fun fan service stuff in there, and you can unlock character art and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the the core game is the same as the 3DS ones.
0: I bought Mario Kart 8 twice. I can't say anything, so... I'll let you off. Um, cool. All right. So I got one uh, one thing this week. Um, no, actually, I played this a fair while ago, but this, again, was during our, our break. So um, while we're in a quiet period, I, I kind of come back to this and just talk about there's a little game called Swordship. Uh, which came out? This was fifth uh, of December actually, so still qualifies under our, our game of the year for twenty twenty three if it makes it that far. Uh, this is a uh, an indie kind of arcade roguelite that comes from us to uh, uh, from Digital Kingdom, uh, published by Thunderfall. Who uh, Thunderfall is the that's the uh, uh, SteamWorld. Um, people I believe yes, it's I about, think it's,
2: it's technically sure the studio that with... bought the SteamWorld or merged with SteamWorld because it was Image yeah, and Form it, was the original studio it's... but they
0: merged so Thunderbolt covers In, yes them. Image and Form yeah and then it kind of yeah kind of grew out of, of that now and so they have like a whole uh, indie publishing so, yeah, it's, house it's not necessarily uh, the SteamWorld this... people but it is the people that publish the SteamWorld games no yeah yeah, yeah that's perfect thank you very much garrett thank you uh so this is a sort of like arcade shoot em up bullet hell roguelite sort of thing um that has a very kind of clean presentation it's going for that low poly look but it does it in a very stylish way where you uh your ship cargo ship is hurtling down a uh should we say like a river uh and you have different obstacles or, or enemies that are shooting at you and it's kind of like a a reverse bullet hell where instead of you firing at enemies, you are purely on on the defensive and you have to kind of figure out how to use enemies' weapons against them. So you might have one enemy that is uh, uh, like a flying enemy that's raining down bombs on you and you have to kind of time it where you're in the position of an enemy that's in the water with you and kind of get the bomb to land on them instead of you. And there's a lot of like uh, kind of half second dodge maneuvers that you have to, to plan. And it's very, it's very frantic, very fast paced. You know, you could be having a, a, a smashing run and then in the blink of an eye, just kind of fuck everything up, uh, which is, you know, part of the fun and challenge of these sorts of games. And it's got a, it's got that Moorish kind of one more go sort of vibe about it. Um, it's not a particularly long game. And I, I feel like arcade is sort of the perfect, uh, term for this because i i've been playing a bunch of uh sega arcade games um that were around from like the mid 90s like i blitzed through the original house of dead house of the dead um that is only like a a 45 minute game and uh you know it's an arcade game that's it's there to eat up your quarters and Swordship kind of perfectly fits into that sort of thing where, you you know, you pick it up and you could play like a run through in about 40, 45 minutes, um, get what you need out of it and, and move on. But it does add a couple of bits of variety in terms of like the weapons that you pick up along the way um, and how you can use those in your run. And like the general idea with a run is that on each level you're on, you're avoiding the enemies. Uh, but there's also like cargo that you have to pick up and there's a X amount per level that you have to pick up. Um but while the enemies are firing at you like if you go to where an obstacle is that you need to pick up you need to kind of stay on that spot for like two or three seconds so during that time obviously enemies can be firing at you so you have to try and time that right and it's not essential that you pick that one up so if you miss that you can you know the next one will appear in like 40 seconds and you can go for that one if it kind of works um for you and obviously the the game escalates where you've got enemies that are firing uh, projectiles that take up half the screen um you your ship has the ability you can dive on the water for a few seconds so there might be uh, like obstacles coming to you in the foreground that require you to do that to go underneath and then they might take out all of the the, the enemies that are there and it's 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 a really like snappy very like just finely crafted fine-tuned game all the meat like, all, there's no fat on this bone. It's all kind of trimmed off to give just a really kind of clean presentation and a really kind of clean experience. And it's the kind of thing that I'm really into at the moment um, to see, because I believe this is a pretty small studio. And, like, for me, and obviously as I'm trying to make my thing, it's looking at these sorts of games and seeing, like, okay, where has all of the excess been removed? And just, like, let's focus on this kind of one core experience and how we can get the most out of this in uh, like a development window that's, say, you know, 18 months and just kind of utilize everything in that that core gameplay experience to the fullest with the resources that we have available. And I think that... I think the swordship ship uh, nails that really well uh, it's on uh, PC Switch PS4 5 it's, it's basically on everything uh, it's like a perfect Switch game to, to kind of like bang through a session in, in half an hour or so and uh, yeah I, I think it's worth uh, picking up I don't know how much it's for it has to be under 20 quid um, it might even be on sale at this point because you know games are on sale within about two weeks on the eShop e- these days but it's, it's pretty cool and I, I, I really like the way it looks um, I'm, again, I'm a sucker for that kind of clean low poly style, uh, I think this is a really kind of effective version of that sort of when, thing. When something so, dies, uh, yeah, that's
2: the Ralph Wiggum say, You sunk my sword ship.
0: He hmm. does not, but that is a missed opportunity. Digital Kingdom, if you're listening, there's a uh, patch 1.02 yeah, or get whatever. In touch.
1: I was thinking that they like, like go musical and be like, We're on the sword ship lollipop <laughs> but yeah.
0: yeah
2: final fantasy 8 has gun swords that, and sword ships sound very final fantasy 8 too it does
0: yeah that's it that's 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 all i've got for this week uh we we have no news so <laughs> is that because he
1: predicted that that segment would take a while i don't actually know how long that segment took uh it was a it, good
2: good 35 40 minutes
1: Oh, was it really? God, yeah. It felt like it oh, flew Mr. by. Mr. Winner over
2: here being like, oh, you know, it's so easy. It just breezed on by.
1: Yeah, you know. So Sometimes you just got to be elite, Garrett. What can I say? I think you're
0: in torture. <laughs> Finish the show, Mark. And that is it. <laughs> that is it for another installment. of <laughs> <All> the links <laughs> to the cast. As always, uh, like, share listen subscribe you know wherever you get this this podcast uh if, you, if you're listening to it on youtube please uh, be sure to uh like and subscribe there um as always you can follow us on twitter ask any questions let us know what you're playing at links to the cast as always dave is at the day to dave i'm a living project jack is at jack lazell garrett is at garrett kidney uh garrett you're not here oh. next week um so dave will be back though so there will be still the triple threat Uh, We'll be here to guide you through another installment of A Link to the Cast. But until then, have a wonderful week. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time for another installment of A Link to the Cast.
1: Bye.